On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Jason Johannes. Welcome to another episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast. Now on Pantheon Podcast. Well, actually, we've been there for a while. Go to Pantheon Podcast to find your most preferred music pos- podcast, your style of music, what's favorite to you. So you uh, can do that when it strikes your fancy. With me is Jason. What's going on, man? Hey, don't <laughs> forget, we're on the official home of the metallica podcast now that's right well you are correct and i'm glad you always remind me of that <laughs> it's, know, a good, it's, it's a big, big deal. deal it's a big deal a big it really deal. is it's a big deal i am well you know brian both both you and i are suffering from the same ailment right now yeah i think it's almost done but it's still kind of i'm pretty sure you can hear it, my voice it's kind of still there but i can function hence well. the delay on this episode the, yeah, uh, we had yeah. There a was just we were gonna player. for the listeners. We were gonna cut this about I don't know four or five days ago, and there was just no way I was gonna be able to make it through. it. I was hacking up lungs, and I just couldn't do it. So we'll, we'll get caught. Up. We'll do it. We'll do it. That's fine. Um, you know, I think we just get right into our guest today because yeah. it is a great conversation. It's a long conversation. Yeah, we had the privilege of talking to Tony Higby, who plays in Tom Kiefer's band and now is playing in Brother Kane uh, with Damon Johnson. And uh, we found out some really pretty cool and funny stuff there with Tony, and it, it was great to talk to him for about two hours. Yeah, you know, we always shoot to try an hour, and if things are going well, we let them roll. And Tony was one of the guys we just enjoyed talking to. He was so funny. Had so many great stories that you're all about to hear. And he's a guy, you know, Brian, who come can come back anytime. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you guys will hear all that right now with our conversation with Tony Higby.
Uh, we're here at the guest segment of the podcast. You guys know I always throw it over to Jason to introduce our awesome guest today. And you know, Brian, I'm always excited when we get to talk to guitar players, particularly guitar players from awesome bands that we love with people that we love. So joining us tonight, somebody we've been tracking down, trying to get a hold of. He's a busy, very busy guy, but Tony Higby, who plays with Tom Kiefer, and is also going to be joining our friend Damon Johnson on this Brother Kane tour. How you doing, Tony? Man, I am great. Thanks for having me. Um, I apologize if I'm slow on a couple of answers. I'm trying to <laughs> wean back, trying to wean back my caffeine intake a little bit right now. Um, I'm regretting that decision today. Why? Especially. Why are you doing that? Trying to wean back the caffeine intake. Yes. Well, because to be fair, uh, if you let me, I will drink a pot of coffee plus a day, no problem. Um. And I really love coffee a lot, but it's not good for my singing voice, number one. And I've, you know, it, it, that's, that's one thing. Number two, I have a bit of a reflux issue. So Mm -hmm. it totally, totally doesn't help that. Um, Like I'm on a prescription for that already. Anyways, Um, some old man shit right there. And uh, number three, oh God, adulting is hard. By the way, can I cuss on this podcast? Oh, Absolutely. for sure. Please do as, up, as right. often as possible. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I, just, I, I, said, I said shit, and I was like, wait a minute. This is, this is supposed to be PG. <laughs> Kids, get um, out of the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, uh, I just, you know, it gets to the point where I get so busy and I get so run down that I start drinking more and more and more. And then it's like I needed just to literally even function. And now I'm just like, okay, Tony, you got to back it the fuck down. Um, so that's you know, where I'm, where I'm, where I'm at right now. So, but I'll live, I'm here. I'm ready to fight the fight. Give a good you interview. Know, Brian, 30, 40 years ago, Tony would be probably talking about drinking too much beer or whiskey before he got, now it's coffee. You know, um, it's funny. Yeah. You're, you're probably right. If you do the math, um, when I was in my, I started playing in bars in my late teens and, uh, I was like a little ahead of the curve, maybe all the guys I was in a band with were a few years older than me. So I was the, I was the underage guy in the band of everybody who was just an age, uh, you know, 17, 18 years old, everybody else is 21, 22, 23. And as a result, there were certain bars that we played that we frequented that they never carded. So I could go there when I wasn't playing and drink like a fish and act a fool. And uh, I actually had a really scary night where I got so drunk that I had no business being behind the wheel. And I got in my car and left, didn't tell my friends I was leaving because I knew they would let me. I had a 45-minute drive home. And in that time, as I went to leave, I looked in my rearview mirror and saw this chick I'd been dating making out with one of my friends in the parking lot. Wigged me out. I backed up. I hit her car. Oh, and then I slammed the car in in first to get to go forward, and I hit a truck in front of me. She was mortified, right? But she was like, "Oh my god!" You know, she was going to say anything. I scuffed her bumper, and you know, she felt bad because she was making out with my friend. And then the guy's <laughs> bumper I hit. There wasn't a mark on it, but I bent this bumper. I didn't. I bet you didn't think this interview was going to start like this. No, nope. um, I, I bent this guy's <laughs> bumper, and. uh he was turns out he was like a mega fan of the band I was in. And I told him, I was like, listen, man, he came out and I was like, listen, man, he goes, it's my dad's truck. He's going to kill me. I said, listen, man, if you call the cops, I'm absolutely going to get a DUI right now. I will pay your dad cash for the bumper. 
And I did. And I think that night, I would think I was 19 years old. Um, I quit drinking. And I didn't have a drop again until I was like 22, 23 years old. I didn't even drink on my 21st birthday. So um, I drank plenty before it was, it was legal. Then when it was legal, it wasn't fun anymore. So, And now I find it at this point in my life, I barely ever drink. It's yeah. not because I'm not, you know, I just, I, now I'm, you know, once I got into my forties, I feel like I drink two or three beers. I don't really get a buzz. I just feel like shit the next day. So, I get bloated and like, I get mm-hmm. reflux from beer. So I don't really drink. Yeah. Beer. Yeah. Wine gives me bad reflux too. And I like a glass of wine, but I just can't. So, and Brian's smaller I mean, than all of us. He doesn't drink at all. Yeah. yeah, I re- yeah I, I'm in retirement. <laughs> you know what good good on you i i literally joke i'm good for like on average a drink a month but at the most and that's it you know a beer maybe but two that, that makes you feel like old you know what i mean when you like drink alcohol you're like man it just it doesn't make me feel good yeah it's just not it's not fun anymore or not as not as fun it's just not it's not the same. It's not the same. It's, it's, no. it's and then the hangovers you know. last like days, not like hours or whatever. Yeah. It's like two days. Oh yeah. Um, I went to see the struts a few weeks ago with my girlfriend and she had over the course of three hours, maybe four hours, she had four gin and tonics and she was sick for two days. <laughs> okay, it sounds she was just, she was dying. She was like, why did you let me do this? And I'm like, have you ever tried to tell you, not to go get another drink after you've had three drinks. Cause I looked over at you and I was like, what are you doing, honey? And you're like, it's cold gin time. Okay? I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, okay. Uh, I'm not stopping that. So anyway, <laughs> she went and she got her fourth gin and tonic. And before I knew it, we were at a Whataburger drive-thru at 3 a.m. So, you know. <laughs> That's usually what gin and tonics lead to is Whataburger at 3 a.m., you know? Well, better, better than Crystal or White Castle, but yes. Well, <laughs> I, I'm going to agree with that, but at the same time, I'm I'm from Ohio, and White Castle's sort of a staple at the same time. It's like say, it's like slamming skyline. Like you can't do that. that. That's kind of a religion for you guys. And you're yeah, okay. I'm, so are you guys live in Columbus, right? No, I live does. in Columbus. I live in Fargo, North Dakota. Oh, good lord! So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just makes everybody. sense that you do Southern Rock and Blues podcasts if you're from Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> My girlfriend is actually born and raised in the Columbus area and her mom still lives in Mount Vernon. Oh yeah. Yeah. So she's up, up the way a little bit out in the country a bit. Yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. I was just up there. Actually, we played Akron with Tom. Yes. I, uh, and I miss, I wanted to go to that show, but I was busy and God, it takes a lot to get me to Akron and I was not able to make it. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. Um, these, these days uh, we live vicariously through watching the young youngins drink and it's like a spectator sport now as it was yeah. for me last night. So. Yes, yes, yes. I don't know if you Amateur know them. Hour. I don't know if you know the band Them Dirty Roses, but those guys. I, <laughs> I am familiar. I'm familiar. I'm, no, I haven't seen them live. But I oh, they're awesome. They're great. Band. They're really good live. The, the yeah. great live show. A lot of energy. A lot of fun. Those guys are like if you took Brian, help me out here. I would say Guns and Roses and mixed them with like a legit like country act, and that's kind of what you get. Ah, uh, you Somewhere had me until you got to country. Well, they're, they're not they're not country, but they have some their of the kind of brand content. is that they play like a lot of like country festivals and stuff. But you know, okay. so does Blackberry Smoke and Whiskey Meyer, so they're kind of like getting in that kind of category. That's to, that that's totally fair. I, I was half yeah. kidding, anyways. But it's, it's <laughs> funny. I, I'm the irony being that I'm the guy who lives in Nashville in this conversation, and I'm just like 
So, yeah, but Nashville is not really. It's like everything. Like everybody's in freaking Nashville. Yeah, it's definitely. I moved here by accident. Well, not by accident. I moved here in 2003 uh, to join a band uh, called Bombshell Crush at the time. And uh, I moved here and I was like, hey, I'm going to go do that band for a couple of years and see how it works out. Because at the time I'd lived in Atlanta for about three years and the band, the band that I was in had folded. And it was really weird. Atlanta had this amazing music scene starting in the late 90s. And somewhere in the middle of 2003, 97% of all the rock bands broke up in a three-month span. It was crazy. It was just like everybody just went and it was done. And it it just it really bizarre. So I left Atlanta and I moved uh, to Nashville and joined this band with some friends of mine who were also from central Illinois and, uh, and some other areas around. And this drummer named Billy Baker, who I was really excited to play with, was in this band called Valentine Saloon that I was a big fan of. So I moved here to join that band. And the night I got here, I met my future ex-wife. And that kept me here for 15 years. And we split, you know, five years ago, but um, at that by that point, obviously, I built up a a thing of, oh, you know, when I got here, there was barely any rock bands. Barely, I mean, there's like five rock bands in Nashville at that time, maybe at any given time. We all knew each other. We all did shows together, and you know, the scene was real small then, and the city had not exploded at all like it has in the last, you know, seven or eight years. So. You know, I just happened to kind of get here ahead of the curve by accident and carve out a bit of a niche for myself is, oh, you need a rock guy called Tony, you know, and it just kind of worked in my advantage over time, you know, and uh, there's a lot of great players here now and there's more moving here every single day, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, they're just stepping over each other to get gigs. And um, I'm fortunate that I've been here for, that I got here when I did and, bought a house when I could still afford one, you know, <laughs> good so, investment. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, bought a house in East Nashville when everybody, when it was the hood, everybody told me I was crazy with my ex and, um, you know, 10 years later, more than doubled our money, um, when we were splitting up sadly, but, uh, it allowed me to have the capital to be able to move, you know, to a different, nicer house that I'm five miles north for less money and East Nashville is like the hottest spot in Nashville to live now. So, you know, that's just kind of how it works out. So, yeah, I mean, just, you know, kind of fortuitous the way that all happened, but, but, but that's kind of what got me here. And um, yeah. And I don't even really remember how this, what the question was to begin with. <laughs> I don't think that. there was one I, yet. I just started <laughs> meandering. So anyway, well, it, 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 go ahead, Jason. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store 
or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. As I said, people will tune in to listen to our guests, not Brian and I. <laughs> well, usually, like I say, we start with like, how'd you get started in music? But you know what? I want to, you mentioned Atlanta. So I want to like, if we can start there, like you said in the early 2000s and there wasn't much going on. I know. I know Blackberry Smoke's been around for 20 years. So, like, what I don't know if you ever saw them back then, but what other, what, what was it like? What other bands, what was going on? And then it, it, there was hardly any band, rock bands there. And then it, it fizzled out or what, what was going on then? Well, here's, uh, let me, let me backtrack just a, a couple years before that to give you an idea of what got me there. So, I grew up in central Illinois. Like, I grew up in the cornfields of Illinois. I think my graduating okay. class was 36 people. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, I didn't really get to go see my first concert until I was old enough to drive to it because Peoria was an hour away and the Quad Cities were an hour away. My first show was Metallica, um, you know, and that was, you know, that was just kind of my surroundings, but I wanted to get out of there. And so I went to high school, uh, grew up there with, you know, grades, high school, all that stuff. Took a year off before I started college and I did one year and one week to the day working at a slaughterhouse. um yeah yeah uh killing killing hogs uh so that was like in the little town i was from that was the big industry was that was that facility and you know it employed you know hundreds if not thousands of people and uh you know i took a year off i did that but i was already playing in bands and out in bars at the time as i as i told you a little while ago and I started to get issues with, uh, I was starting to have early signs of tendonitis and possibly carpal tunnel. And that was all the college incentive I needed. So I got out, started at a community college, did that for two years. Then I moved on to Western and I got my bachelor's degree. And that was kind of always my thing with my mom. Uh, my parents had split when I was a teenager. And I lived with my mom for most of that time. And her whole thing was, you know, listen, I support you and whatever you want to do musically 100%, but just do me a favor and go to college. So I was like, all right. So I went to college and I got my degree. And what um, degree did you get though? I'm now I'm curious. Communications degree, public communication and human relations with the emphasis. I had a minor in psych. I actually started off as a psych major. And then once I kind of got into it, I was like, man, I I don't agree with a lot of the stuff I'm reading and studying. And Freud was a little weird. And you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, I was just kind of looking at it all. I was like, yeah, you know, and and, and so I, I got out, I, I decided to to change it up you know, when, when it was still time and it wasn't going to keep me there, you know, any extra time. So, uh, I did that. And towards the end of my senior year, I was trying to figure out where I was going to live. And by that point, my mom and my stepdad, my little brother and sister had moved to Mississippi. They lived in West Point, Mississippi. I knew I'd already made up my mind that I never, ever wanted to take my car out of a snowstorm ever again. I was done <laughs> just over it. i I literally that winter had dug my car out of a snowstorm and, and had the transmission go out trying to get it out of the spell. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> awful. I was like, I'm never doing this again. So 
I started looking around the map. Late 90s, I was running a CD store while I was in college. I was running a CD store, like managing it part-time. I was playing in a band, playing two, three nights a week, doing three or four sets a night. And I was DJing part-time nights at a rock radio station in Galesburg, Illinois. And I was going to school full-time. I literally have no idea how I did it um, when I think back on it. But, you know, when you're that young, you have all that energy and you figure it out. Sleep's so, not important. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I was kind of paying it. I mean, obviously I was paying attention to what was happening in music and the bands I was really into. And there'd been, a, you know, some really cool stuff come out in the late nineties. That first seven dust record came out. The first double drive album came out. A really big one was marvelous three. Hey album. Oh yeah. Came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, all Atlanta bands and it was South and it was warm and it was just a few hours away from my family. And I was like, you know what? I don't know a single soul in Atlanta. I'm going to go there and start over. So I got out of college and I just drove, drove to Atlanta and, and uh, you know, or drove, drove, stayed with my folks for, you know, a few weeks and then found an apartment and job in Atlanta. And I moved there and uh, you know, kind of dug in and was there for a few years. And, and that was what eventually brought me to Nashville. But to your question, when I was in Atlanta, I mean, some of these bands, that I knew, like I was in a band called Simple Sick Device. And we were one of those bands that kind of almost got there. We had label people coming out to see us and all that, but we were all young and, you know, there was enough ego to go around and more than way, way more than enough to go around. And it just, you know, it just imploded before it ever really had a chance. And, um, you know, I played with a couple other bands for a brief period of time, but then this thing popped up in Nashville and around the time Simple Sleep Device had broken up, um, Double Drive had essentially shut down. Injected had broken up. The Marvelous Three had broken up. Um, there was just, there was like nothing, like all these rock bands. And, you know, all of a sudden, a couple of our haunts that, you know, all these rock bands would play uh, started having like cover bands and rock and like live music karaoke and all that shit. And there's just, you know, all that stuff got started to get ate up by that. And you just, you know, it just kind of started to suck in a real short period of time. Um, I loved Atlanta and I love the people there and I, I love the city. I had a great time there, but you know, it was time to leave what I did and a lot I did. So yeah. And then that, that's kind of what got me up to Nashville at that point. Is is there anybody in, in Atlanta that you met or have crossed paths with since that is any sort of significant you know, role in your music career or anything like that? or Man, you know, if there's one guy I could probably point to, to some extent, uh, it'd be a guy named Danny Grady from the band Injected. I don't know if you remember those guys or not. Um, you should check them out if you don't know them. A lot of guys, a lot of people outside of the Southeast don't know that band. They have one album on Island called Burn It Black. It was the first album that Butch Walker ever produced. Oh, there you um, go, man. And it was a yeah first first big rock record that Butch ever produced. Um, it's just a killer, dirty, heavy rock record with great hooks. And uh, you know they were they were you know they were influenced as much by you know Helmet as they were Cheap Trick. You know, like there's just some great riffs, and it's very it's very at the time as far as some of the production values and stuff like that, like that early 2000s thing. But anyways, Danny, one of the most talented people I know 
cool voice, ripping guitar player. He actually produced a band I had uh, probably in 2005, 2006 called Caprice. And he did our second record, Starlighter. And just, you know, we really got to be good friends with that. And he's given me a lot of advice over the years. And, you know, Steve said stuff to me that I've made note of and take it to heart, whether he realizes it or not. And, uh, you know, had a, had a pretty positive impact on me at that point. Um, Butch Walker, I run into every once in a while. He lives in Nashville now too. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've known each other forever. And, you know, it's not one of those, we ring each other up, you know, every week or every other week and say, Hey man, what's going on? But, you know, we, we, we communicate every once in a while. That's always a real positive, you know, like, catch up and stuff like that he's you know he's always been a really good guy to me there's one last question about atlanta we've been fortunate enough to have steve gorman on a couple times the first time i had to ask him about uh little five points in atlanta at that time this was when he got there was the late 80s did you ever spend time in that neighborhood and what was it like when you were there because he said when when he was there he was very like every kind of different kind of artist and person and walk of life all mingling together a lot of artists and stuff there was still a good bit of that when I got there. And I actually lived just a couple miles up the road uh, from Little Five Points. Basically, I could turn left out of the, the apartment that I lived in and just start driving. And I'd cross, Little Five, I'd cross Ponce de Leon Avenue and be in Little Five Points in six minutes. You know, I just wouldn't even have to turn off that road. Um, so, yeah, I spent some time down there. The band I was in, we used to play Nine Live Saloon quite a bit down there. We used to play the Star Bar uh which has been there forever and um you know we it, it, it was it was a cool vibe it was a cool hang for sure it you know it it, it was fun criminal records down there um junk man's daughter i think was the name of the clothing place uh but yeah five points was you know it was a bit of a melting pot you can go see some different bands i got introduced to some different bands down there um, there was a band from New Orleans called Supergroup that I don't know if you ever heard those guys. They were like they were like New Orleans ACDC. And I actually like went Zydeco ACDC. I, I I can't it's not like that. It was like it was like ACDC, but with this little bit of just swampiness to it. Like okay. just this little bit of southern, like, you know. And it just, just a bunch of attitude and a real tongue in cheek sense of humor to a lot of the songs, but yeah, they were a killer band. And I remember they spent, I swear to God, they spent like two or three years, a couple of years later, opening for Alice Cooper, like constantly. So Alice was a big fan. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were in that movie, um, basketball. Oh, really? Like in, there's in the a, South Park? there's a scene in basketball where they're playing, uh, a game of basketball and there's actually like a live band in the background and it's super group. So yeah, I don't know why that just popped into my head, but yeah, I saw them for the first time down there, you know, and uh, yeah, there's, you know, the Gaza strippers from Chicago. First time I saw them was down there. Wait a minute. Yeah, their, their name is the Gaza strippers. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so do you know the, band the super, do you know the band, the super suckers? Yes, absolutely. There's an album called Sacrilicious Sounds of the Super Suckers. And that's the first, re- there was a one record in their kind of heyday with it. Ron Trost Heathman didn't play guitar on. There's this other dude and he's wearing like a derby hat. That dude wound up after that starting the Gaza Strippers. Um, and he was a singer and guitar player. But yeah, great, great band name, couple of killer records. 
they did the most shit hot version of sheer heart attack I've ever heard in my life. So huh. anyways, yeah. Brian, I, I have three names of bands because I always write notes down when we talk to people. Awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, well, actually, here's one for you because you guys were asking about uh, um, Blackberry Smoke. I never saw those guys when I lived there. And I'm not sure. I got out of there in August of 2003. And I'm not sure really when their come up started. I know. I feel like it was shortly after that. But I do remember being down there and seeing drive by truckers. Oh in, yeah, yeah. In uh, in Smith's old bar, um, I guess they had a record they did at one point. I think when Jason Isbell was still in the band, um, that was like a Southern rock opera kind of Southern record. rock opera. Yeah, is the name. Yeah, yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. It was when they had done that record, and they were at Smith's old bar playing to like seventy five people, and uh, and Jason would have still been in the band at the time. And I remember going to see him and thinking, "Oh, these guys are really great," you know. And I never thought anything else of it, but I tell some people now that i saw that show and like oh my god you you, you saw them then like you know they like this yeah. oh like you know so it's the same look you know that kids give me now when i tell them that i saw Soundgarden on the bad motorfinger tour opening for skid row so <laughs> that that was a crazy time like the early 90s early to mid 90s we had this transition from like the clam rock to more the grungier stuff where you had like Alice in Chains opening up for like metal, you know, like it was a like really, Van Halen, yeah, Van Halen, yes, yeah. interesting. Like that's cool that you got to see that. Was so my question for you, and then I'm going to follow up is like how disjointed or like what was that like? Because you have two very distinct type of bands playing. Like, did it flow I, together great? Like, is a lot. I got to be honest. I got to be honest. I I I've been asked that before just in casual conversation yeah it didn't seem weird at the time okay it wasn't it wasn't such a it wasn't such a huge departure i mean skid row that was a slave to the grind tour and oh, so i that think was heavy. you know yeah yeah heavier you know um that was a palmer auditorium in davenport iowa i saw a lot of great shows there in that time period and they were I mean, Skid Row was at the height of their powers at that moment. You know, that album had debuted at number one on Billboard. Right, and, right. you know, Soundgarden had just, Outshined had just really started to pop. And I was familiar with Soundgarden from Loud Love, you know, and from that previous album. And I owned Bad Motorfinger at that time. And I spun it side by side with Slave to the Grind and didn't think anything of it. Um, it seemed it seemed fun for those bands to cohabitate. You know, I think it's safe to say that, you know, now are you going to see would Soundgarden make sense on the same bill as, you know, poison? No, no. you know, probably not. Um, Warrant would have been a stretch maybe, although Doggy Dog was a heavy Dog record. Doggy Dog is a great record. That's my and favorite a, Warrant record. And I think it's a lot of people's favorite Warrant record. If you stuck around long enough, that's your favorite Warrant record. Yep. Um, you know, but, but, but Skid Row and Soundgarden didn't seem that weird, you know? So I, I mean, yeah, it was great. I saw the Flaming Lips, I guess this is too weird. I saw the Flaming Lips open for Candlebox. Huh. And mm. I'll never forget being on the same place. <laughs> Candlebox, first album, huge. Yeah. 
these guys come out that are the opening band, the sandwich band, the first band to play, and this is the middle band. These guys come out and start setting up all the gear. I assume it's just the crew. And then all of a sudden, dude turns around and goes, how you guys doing? We're the Flaming Lips. They busted into their first song. And I'm like, huh, what's that about? Like, they don't even have a crew, you know? And their whole light show was they had like tube lighting wrapped around all their amps and their drums and that was it they just plugged it in said hi we're the flaming lips and they started playing you know and that was like when she don't use jelly had just come out on mtv you know yeah oh yeah i remember that i i remember they were on an episode of beverly hills 90210 where they played in like the peach pit when that song was big nice so <laughs> so uh we're bringing yeah, it back here, here here's your 90210 question what is the first song that ever played on that show literally the opening credits of the first episode that, that you've 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 got me because all i can think of is i hear the theme song in my head you mean besides that like literally when the first scene starts this is such a deep and this reminds me of uh steve from uh, the black crows when when i ask you this question i'll tell you why in a minute um all i want is everything by jellyfish Oh, oh my God! Jellyfish is such a great band. Yeah, one of my favorites of all Are time. Are you serious? Shit. Yep. If you I'm ever watch down that episode, now. the the very first episode, the very first for the opening credits show, that's the song that's playing. And that's a man that knows his Gorman, Brian. Because so, so what's Steve, that have to do with Gorman? Yeah, <laughs> he loves Jellyfish. So, Black Rose, yeah. Love oh, yeah. right? So I was I I was uh, record shopping at Grimey's one day in Nashville, and uh, this has been I don't know pre-pandemic so probably five years ago and i i walked in there like five in the afternoon five thirty. place is packed like you can't hardly move i'm like what the fuck is going on in here and there was some dude up there with like a little band like a, a band like in the back of this little shop playing and i start peeking around looking it's like some americana stuff and i start looking at me, oh my god that's chris shiflet he was just doing some in-store so i'm like all right so I caught like the last song and then the place cleared out. And then I decided to start doing some record shopping. And before I know it, I'm in front of Gorman and Chris and we start talking. I met him before, not Chris, but McGorman and always been super cool. I think I met him through, I think Oddly Freed introduced us because um, I've known Oddly for a long time. Um, he's been my neighbor most of the time that I've lived here in some way, shape or form. And uh, so anyways, I think he had introduced us. And so we were shooting the shit. And I don't remember how Jellyfish came up, but something about Jellyfish came up. And, and Gorman was like, man, I'll tell you right now, when we were on the road, we hated everything new that was coming out. We hated all of it because we were dicks about it. Goes, and that record came out and we all just sat with our jaws on the floor, just in silence. And we listened to that thing over and over and over again. And then biggest regret of my life before I'd really been exposed to Jellyfish the Crows were on the Southern Harmony tour. They took Jellyfish out as their opening band. Mm -hmm. And I missed it. They oh. played that same venue, Palmer Auditorium. I could have gone and I got a, I had a sinus infection and I, I just, somebody offered me a ticket and I passed because I was too sick and I didn't mm -hmm. go. And then I discovered Jellyfish later and I was like, son of a bitch. Like that's one of my biggest concert regrets in my life is missing that show. So they, some of the members of the Crows, Gorman included, I think they did a, a little bit of a side project with some of those guys from Jellyfish. And yeah. I cannot remember the name of it. It's really like obscure. Now, yeah, it was like, it. it was like something like. Something, something pickle. Yeah, sweet, sweet pickle. Sweet pickle salad. Sweet, sweet, 
sweet pickle relish. Sweet, sweet, sweet pickle, pickle relish. salad. It was a salad. Something big, I don't think any, I don't think any of it ever saw the light of day, did it? There, if you're savvy on the internet, you can find stuff. Came up. <laughs> I just want to know was Robinson singing? Um. Yes, and Brian, you know how we can find all that with our Black Crows group, the State of America group, who do the Black Crows podcast. They have access to those tunes. I uh, Tony, if I, I track them down, I'll I'll send you the links so you can listen. Please to do, them. please yeah, do. I'll do it. Um. So uh, it's funny that you say that. I, I'm sitting in my, I've got a music room. Uh, well, I'm in. I've got a full finished basement, and I've got a full rehearsal room off to one side. But then I've got the smaller room, and I've got like vintage Macintosh receiver down here and a bunch of albums and CDs and all that stuff. It's kind of just a, a low key hang room. And I actually just dropped off my vintage belly button and spilt milk tour posters oh, to get yeah. framed, to be hung up in here. Oh, so, yeah. So uh, looking forward to getting those back. And Brian so. was right, by the way, it is sweet pickle salad. And there are some things oh. on YouTube, but if I get actual audio files or whatever, Tony, I'll send them to you guys, to both of you. Please do. Thank you, Brian. So when, Brian. when you mentioned uh, 90210, it just reminded me of uh, Melrose Place. There's uh, another trivia thing, but uh, Phil Lewis from LA Guns made a cameo on Melrose Place. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Next time I see him, I'm going to ask him about that. How the hell do you know that? How do I know that? Yeah, did you watch it? I was watching that episode. Back then, that was a really heavy time, so me and my yeah. buddy would get together and, you know, spark <laughs> it up for every, like, hot chick, or we'd, so we'd watch stupid shows like that. <laughs> so instead of taking a shot, you took a hit. Yeah, or whatever. Well, I was still yeah. drinking then, but he wasn't, but yeah. Yeah, so I saw... I, it might have been a hallucination, but I'm pretty sure Phil Lewis was on Melrose Place. One episode. I, I... I... I love this bit of information. Like I said, I I will actually literally see him next weekend. I'm going to ask him about it. They're well, because you got, are you guys playing together. You're playing together, right, with Kiefer and, and LA Guns. Yeah, yeah. I've got my last two Tom Kiefer shows of the year next weekend in New Mexico, and LA Guns is opening uh, one of those shows. I think the second one. So yeah, um, looking forward to that. I mean, we've done a bunch of. We did obviously we did a whole tour with those guys last year. We've done a few shows with them this year already. Ace Von Johnson lives less than maybe a mile up the street from me, if not less. I think less, he took care we, of your sick cat while you were gone. We had him on. He's been on a couple of times, but last year around Halloween, we did a special Halloween episode, and he had to cut out, I think, to go take care of a cat or something, give cat medicine. It actually sounds about right. Um, yeah. He takes care of our ailing cats, and we take care of his ailing dogs, and that's, you know, or it's, it's a constant barrage of pet sitting. Literally, him, myself, and my girlfriend have a google calendar where we all have our schedules up there <laughs> just so we know when the other person is out of town so other people are out of town so we know we have to find somebody else to come over and yeah. take care of our animals yeah so we just it's incestuous little circle uh, he's a good dude he's got a big heart he's a great guy he's one of my favorite humans for sure so um we've been good friends for Honestly, we met the first year I started playing with Tom, so that's been 10 years ago, and we've been, you know, fast friends ever since. So he blames me for him coming to Nashville. <laughs> it was probably a good thing for him, honestly. Like, he's involved in a bunch of shit. He is, you know. I mean, he's he's got, you know, he's a very resourceful guy, super likable, really great at networking, and, uh, you know, he had the ground running when he got here. Um, COVID be damned, and, you know, just 
you know, has kind of carved out a little spot for himself here in town and everybody, you know, that meets Ace loves him and knows him and, you know, but yeah, he's, he's, he's doing well for himself here. I'm really happy for him. When did you meet Oddly Freed? Man, I, I met him probably in 2000, probably in, probably in 2004. I met him, I believe at the Mercy Lounge. He was, he was jamming with this band called the Plastic Rulers. And uh, it was, a I, I, don't remember who the drummer was. It might be the guy who actually drums for Cheryl Crow now with Oddly. I, I'm just not sure. Um, the bass player was Billy Mercer, who mm. I'd never met. And Billy is now the bass player in Tom's band and has been the whole time. Uh, but Billy at that point was either still in or just coming out of playing for Ryan Adams and the Cardinals. Uh, and Oddly was, uh, he, he just he had, those guys and a lot of the guys in Nashville, they just got friends that they've got their main big gigs, but they've got friends that they'll just go jam with and you can go catch them at the Mercy Lounge or um, at the Family Wash was a spot for a long time. And, you know, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure that was the first night I met Oddly. And, um, you know, he's just such a nice guy. And when we talked, we discovered that he literally lived, I don't know, three quarters of a mile up around the curve, basically in East Nashville. And uh, I would see him, the house I had in East Nashville was a one block street that dead ended into one of the main entries for the Shelby Bottom Greenways, which are a lot of paved greenways. A lot of people go running and biking and stuff on them. And I'd be sitting in my living room and look out the window uh, and oddly would go running by jogging in his, you know, 70s running shorts and tennis <laughs> shoes and his, and his headband on and you couldn't miss him. You know, and just, <laughs> that dude, that dude runs and runs and stays and she's like forced dumpy runs so much it's crazy, but that's how he stays in such good shape. I actually went to my brother's house in East Nashville last night and I couldn't get out of my car fast enough. I saw oddly running down the street past my brother's <laughs> house, right, just randomly at like, I don't know, 6.30 PM. So <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's what I met oddly. I saw him jamming with Nick Gorvik and some drummer I didn't know at the um, the Nashville Bowl during Rock and Pot. It was like last this past March or whatever, and okay. I fangirled out over him. I got a picture with him at least, and you know tried to harass him to coming on the pod because I love Oddly Freed, Cry Love. I like to sit with the Crows. Love love when they did stuff with Jimmy Page. So like. I was like, you're one of my favorite guitar players. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm like, yes, you are, man. He couldn't, he couldn't believe it. <laughs> Dude, he's like, that's just how he is. And he's like, he's like, oh man, whatever. I'm just gonna go play some shit. Yeah, just gonna say I'm gonna play some shit. I was gonna fucking around. I don't know, you know. <laughs> he's, he's 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 so humble and he's so modest that he starts playing guitar and it just makes all the rest of us want to sell our shit and go do something. All else. right. Yeah, you know, one of the one of my friends who's I found out early on his favorite guitar player of all all time is Oddly Freed, and he's and I I met him through completely different circumstances, but it came up in a conversation and I was floored by this is Mark Tremonti. Oh yeah, from Creed and uh, Mark's uh, and and Alterbridge, his favorite yeah, Alterbridge, guitar yeah. player is Oddly Freed. 
Mark was in town doing a record one time and I took him to the family wash to see Audley play with Keith Gaddis. And uh, he was just in heaven. He was sitting in this little bar watching Audley and he has glasses on. He's just like, just like, like a kid, just like, like a kid, like me on the barricade of Metallica. But it was Mark just sitting back at the table, just watching Audley, just studying everything. That's what I did when he was playing. Yeah. Like, like he's playing, you know, that little, I forget what that lounge is called there outside the, yeah. the bar. And yeah. And I, I was like, like staring, yeah. like I felt bad, but like, I, dude, one of my favorite guitar <laughs> players, like five feet away, like literally from me, just like getting after it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's nothing. So he's, 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 he's special. Was, for sure. Was- was that neighborhood that you lived in, is there a certain place like that neighborhood or somewhere else where people tend to go, like musicians, professional musicians go when they move there to end up living around there? Because I hear like different things. Like the last thing I heard, I was reading an interview with Tyler Bryant and he's been on a couple of times, but I was reading an interview with him and he said, yeah, I used to live right next door to, I can't think of his name, but the singer guitar player for the Cadillac 3. Jaron. Yeah. This is name. I don't, you know, it's funny. I know Jaron a little bit, but I haven't seen him in years. I knew Jaron through um, uh, James Michael. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with James or not. Yeah. Um, he was a singer, singer at 6 a.m., produced all that Molly <laughs> Crew stuff, That's writes right. a ton of stuff. James lived here for a few years, and him and I actually got to be really good friends. And uh, I used to go play on some stuff at his studio for him, just some kind of here's a little money play on this track. Don't tell anybody that kind of thing, you know? And uh, he actually is responsible for getting me back into golf. And I've spent a lot of money playing golf in the last (laughs) 10 years because of James Michael, but uh, you know, I do love it. So anyways, uh, and it's funny that set of clubs that he gave me to get me to start playing golf again, I then passed on to Joe Hottinger from Hailstorm, who is now still using those golf clubs. And anyways, that's neither here nor there, but I knew Jaron. All you Nashville him. rock guys, I tell you, I knew Jaron through James, but I really never ever talked to him outside of James very often. I haven't seen the guy in ages. Um, Tyler, though, I talk to and see on a semi regular basis. It's very possible that they were in East Nashville, because um, man, when that was when I bought a house over there, that really became kind of the spot for a lot of the creative types of musicians. It was me, Audley Freed, Keith Gaddis. Billy Mercer eventually got a place over there. Uh, Jeremy Asbrock, who plays guitar for Ace Frehley's band now. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to play in a band together briefly called the Shazam that Jeremy was in for a long period of time. Um, and I, I played bass for them for like six months and was, you know, what an amazing power pop band. They were, they were the band that should have got signed instead of Jet. Uh, and that was actually a real thing, evidently, as the label was looking at both bands and signed Jet over them. Um, I'll find that story out later, but uh they were fantastic and there was it was there's like a lot of art of the art community out in east nashville because we got the vibe it was kind of starting to gentrify and be on the come up but we could afford to live there hey pantheon listeners christian swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear as i'm sure you can guess i listen to a lot of podcasts I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. 
Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business. And I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. You know, we could afford to buy a house there and not just pay rent someplace um, because we couldn't afford to live in Brentwood. We couldn't afford to live in Franklin and Franklin's 45 minutes away. Nobody wanted to be that far out of town. And, you know, now Nashville is crazy expensive. East Nashville is crazy expensive. So a lot of us have moved up to Madison, which is if you're in East Nashville and you drive up Gallatin Road, as soon as you cross over Bradley Parkway, you're in Madison. It's, you know, I live maybe five miles north of my old house, maybe. I'd say four, maybe five at the most. And I got a nicer house for $75,000 less than I sold my previous house for on an acre and a half. So, you know, uh, Robert Kearns, I don't know if you know Robert. He yeah. lives up here too. He didn't cry love you. Yeah, yeah. He's in cry love. He plays in Cheryl's band. Yeah, he's oddly, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, he lives up here too. Um, Mike Ferris is my mm-hmm. neighbor. Uh, Supreme Supreme Cheetah Cheetah Wheelies. Wheelies. Uh, Brian Forsyth from Kicks is my neighbor too. Oh, really? Nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. He lives here too. Um, you know, Ace is up in Madison. So yeah, now a lot of people are coming up to Madison. So uh, and then you got a lot of guys that live out in Bellevue. Like Damon lives in the Bellevue area. Uh, you know, Buck Johnson. Uh, just lots of lots of guys out there too. So, um, but yeah, there's there's so many people moving here. It's just crazy. Next time we're in town for Rock and Pod, we're just going to walk around that neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> what, over my neighborhood? Yeah. Don't walk. Do you need to know what side of Gallatin Road to knock? Okay. <laughs> there's a good side and a bad side. Be the, during the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a good side and a bad side. We'll, we'll Ace, chat you and you can send us an address or something. To yes, absolutely. Ace, unfortunately, rented on the bad side. Didn't realize it initially. His house is actually really nice. and He's barely on the bad side, but he is on the bad side. Just so, just touching it. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got he's 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 like a couple blocks into the bad side. He has all that really cool um, movie and monster memorabilia stuff. Tons of it. It covers his house. Yeah, so. it's awesome. Like anytime I'm on his Patreon, and then of course he's been on with us a couple times. Like you can always see it, and he shows his stuff off. It's really cool. I I love horror movies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's it was never like I can't say that I ever got into it. Um, but man, you walk into his house and it looks like a, a horror movie museum. It's pretty amazing. Those posters are so, 
I mean, they're, 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 they're unreal. I mean, he's got stuff that's like crazy Italian movie posters that are like floor to ceiling tall, you know, just, just nuts. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Such, he, it, it, he's got a whole, Ace has a whole vibe like nobody I've ever met. And I love that about, him, you know, just the whole horror goth, you know, tatted up. Like you'll never meet a bigger Misfits fan in your life. Like just, yep. you know, and, and I, and I love that, you know, so. He's, he's, you know, he, when we buy each other records all the time, I think we're constantly trying to turn each other on to stuff. So like Ace bought me, you know, an electric Frankenstein record and a Misfits album. And then I bought him uh, Humble Pie Smoking and, you know, Humble Pie at Winterland 73. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I got him into UFO, like here's Strangers in the Night and, you know, stuff like that. So we're just constantly feeding each other, you know, you know, music and, and he's it's, giving it's you great. the punk. You're giving him the classic rock, and I've and we've got a lot of common ground. There's a lot of those kind of UK, Scandinavian, late '90s, early 2000s kind of punk crossover bands that we're both really into, like the Backyard Babies and the Helicopters and uh, um, Wolfgaza Strippers. Uh, who else? Um, <laughs> I love that I name miss, so much. It's 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 an amazing name, and I'm telling you, the albums are great. Uh, and then, uh, shoot, who's the one had the singer that just passed away like a year or two ago? Uh, they were also Scandinavian. Oh, um, I'm, I'm missing out. And then the Wild Hearts is a huge band for me. Uh, one of my favorite bands of all time, actually. And a lot of people don't know about them. I got, I got Ace into them pretty hard. Uh, is that with Tuck yeah, Smith? So no. Oh, okay. Uh, that's Tuck Smith in the. Is it the Restless Hearts? Restless Hearts is his new one. Oh, he was okay. in the Miters yeah. before that. No, yeah. there there is a band from the UK called the Wild Hearts. And mm-hmm. I'm convinced that Dave Grohl owns every record that they ever made. There's there's some stuff. I mean, to the point where their first record came out. The album that they get a lot of critical praise for over there the, is their first full length. And it was called Earth Versus the Wild Hearts. It was on Atlantic came out i think in 93 um and they were everything that was great about like if you just took cheap trick and stars and the suite and then you rolled them up with the time signature and riff changes of early metallica like these massive hooks and this uk like this snotty english london delivery but with all these riffs and this raw punk feel at the same time, that was the Wild Hearts to the point where there's even a song on the first record called Everlone. Oh. And and I and it, it sounds nothing like there's something Everlong, Everlong, but still it's Everlong the name. But I, yeah, I never, you know, and they don't sound the same. But I just always thought that was odd. But there's when you get to their second record, it's called Fuck You, and it's spelled P H U Q. Of course. That is when it really the sound starts to tighten up and all that, and that's when I really start to hear. Like I feel like I feel like Grohl listened to these guys, and I mean that in the most complimentary way because I love the Foo Fighters, you know. But I listen to it, and I'm like, man, you know, there's there's just some great songs and some great musicality going on there, and uh, I they they've made some weird detours on a couple records, but for the most part, their whole catalog is amazing, all the way up until the last record, all the way up to the last record they made a year and a half, two years ago. So. I noted them as well, Brian. I have like now f- at least five bands that Tony's going to check out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's okay, what we nice. like. 
there when you I go. get off this 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 hangout with you guys, I'm I'm going to one get the sweet pickle salad stuff over to both of you, and then I'm going to start listening to these other bands. It's got a lot of homework tonight. Nice, that's nice. good. That's a good kind of homework. It is a good kind <laughs> of homework. So you you talked about uh, you started playing with Kiefer ten years ago, and I kind of want to hear about yeah. that because one. You know, Brian and I both obviously we're doing a blues and Southern rock podcast, but we were metalheads, hard rock guys, but always, I think, loved the stuff that fell more bluesier, the bluesier vibes, like the Cinderella's, the Aerosmith's, yeah. Tesla stuff. So, yeah, as you're wearing the shirt and I'm wearing actually Tom Kiefer on, on my face. So. Oh, yeah, no, I, I yeah. saw I I didn't realize you're wearing the Kiefer shirt. I saw the Tesla shirt. I'm wearing. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So how did you get hooked up with Tom? Well, let me give you, well, there's really not a Cliff Notes version of me. Just, let me just give you the story. So I knew Eric first from Cinderella. Um, when I moved here in 2003 to join that band, Bombshell Crush, uh, Eric had a band called Naked Beggars with his wife at the time, Inga. Um, and they needed a utility player. And I actually recommended my sister-in-law the girl that became my sister-in-law girl named christine who actually went through a lot of writing with them she played keys and she could play fiddle and she's sing like a bird she's super talented and uh so anyways she, she started playing with them and then jeff moved to nashville the bar and he joined the band and we, we were doing shows together so i knew eric and jeff first then cinderella um was going to do some shows and I, at the time I was working at Guitar Center and those guys sent um, Fred in to see me about getting some stuff they needed for his kid. Well, my band was playing in town a couple nights later and Fred came out and watched us play. and was like, holy shit, and loved the band. And to the point where I guess he literally went to Tom and was like, man, we need to kick this other band off the tour and take these guys out and blah, 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 blah. At least that's, you know, that's that's the way I had it relate to me. So whatever, you know. And I knew who the, I know who the other band was. It was on the tour and I'm actually friends with their singer and I'm not going to say anything. But, you know, and they're actually a great band too. So, um, but it was flattering to say the least. So fast forward a while down the road and Tom needed a guitar because he had an old 51 Fender Nocaster that, you know, was worth a ton of money. It was the song that he tracked Gypsy Road with, or the guitar that he tracked Gypsy Road with. It's just a, you know, real, like, that was like his number one telly. And he didn't want to take it on the road anymore. So Fred said, hey, go see my guy Tony down at GC. He knows the shit. He'll get you hooked up. I'll find the right guitar. So came in. And sure enough, I actually had a guitar that fit the bill, got him hooked up. He was super happy. That was it. What was so, it? What was it? What guitar? It was a custom shop fender, no caster reissue, just a relic replica. So same vibe and all that, but not, you know, uh, at the time, 50 or $60,000 guitar. So, and now, you know, probably a six figure guitar. So anyways, and he still has that guitar and he plays it to this day. Um, so, over the over time, you know, he needs something, he'd hit me up, I'd help him out. He'd come in and he comes in one day and he says, We we were just talking, he was buying something for me, and he very casually said something along the lines of, Yeah, I've got this solo record that I just finished. I've got to go out and uh tour it next year. He goes, I'm at a loss of even where to start. He goes, I've been playing with the same band since you know, this since the early eighties. He goes, I've never had a different band. He goes, I don't even know where to begin. 
And I just very casually off the cuff said, well, if you need any help with that, let me know. That's all I said. So evidently, so, so let me, let me skip. So about, I don't know, three, four, five days later, I get a phone call and it's Tom. Okay. What's up? And he goes, you know, say, man, are you, uh, are you going to be at the shop tomorrow? Like, yeah, he goes, well, he goes, you know, I've got these old marshals and I, I'm kind of scared to take them out. I told you I'm going to do that tour, the solo tour. And, you know, I'll be playing some clubs and kind of starting there and, you know, maybe get something a little smaller and also maybe a little more reliable and blah, blah, blah. You know, I just want to kind of check a few things out. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, I got some stuff. Come on down. So he shows up right when he says he's going to, and I plug him into a couple different amps and he's playing. He's like, Oh yeah, this sounds great. And he's, you know, playing guitar and it's Tom Kiefer. And he goes, here, man, do me a favor. You play real quick. Let me stand back and listen to it and see what it sounds like. Uh-huh. And I just started, I just started playing and I wasn't thinking anything about it. Although, laugh, although laughingly, I can look back and tell you that I think I literally started playing rock bottom by UFO. Didn't think anything of it. What I didn't know is that one of Tom's favorite guitar players of all time is Shanker, you know? So I, once again, wasn't thinking about it. Played for a minute and it's like, God, sounds great. Killer. All right, cool. He goes, all right, that gives me something to think about. While we're at it, where are the acoustics at? Walk over to the acoustic room, sit down, and we start playing. I hand him a couple guitars, and I'm playing. We're listening to some stuff. And the room we were in, there's this little sliding door, and he reaches over, and he slides the door shut. And he goes, so do they ever let you leave here? And I go, what do you mean? I clock out at 5 o'clock every day. And he goes, no, like, could you go, like, do a tour and play shows? I'm like, yeah. He goes, can we get together and jam sometime? I was like, yeah. So anyways, my band was playing a week or two later at 12th and Porter here in town, band Eastside Gamblers, which stayed active actually all the way up until, you know, probably about a year ago. And, you know, we put a few EPs out and did some stuff and Nick Rascal Linux did our last EP. And that was a lot of fun and turned out really good. Um, and we were playing at 12th and Porter and Tom and his wife showed up and they were like these silhouettes against the back wall. And we were playing. I wasn't thinking anything of it. And in between songs, I had people come to me going, Hey man, Hey, Tom Kiefer's here. Tom Kiefer's in the back of the room. And you got to understand at the time, Tom Kiefer's lived in Nashville since like 96, but a Tom Kiefer sighting, especially at that time was like a Sasquatch sighting. It's like, you knew he was around (laughs) You knew he was around, but you never saw him. It's like, you know, I remember just saw his footprints. Show. Yeah. Like, I had my drummer show up in rehearsal one day in Bombshell Crush and be like, guys, I saw Tom Kiefer at Home Depot today. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. Like, what did he look like? He was, well, he was wearing sweats and in a, in a ratty t shirt. But other than that, he looked just like Tom Kiefer, you know, like he had the bracelets necklaces and all that and anyways and I, now i see it on a tour bus on a regular basis i'm like yeah yeah that's absolutely who it was um so anyways they came out and they were just checking out the band and uh tom called me up and initially he was actually interested in possibly hiring everybody except the other guitar player um just because he didn't need a three guitar player band but you know our drummer at the time had other commitments our bass player at the time, because my brother had other commitments, 
And so it just started with me and him getting together and singing and jamming. And then uh, I brought in the original drummer, Paulie Simmons, who had been in the Reverend Horton Heat for quite some time uh, before that. But he got off the road because his brother had had a bad motorcycle wreck and he wanted to be home and closer to him for a while to take care of him. And Paulie was just ready to get a gig. Uh, and then Paulie brought in Billy Mercer. And then Tom brought in Paul Taylor because Paul had been out playing Keys of Cinderella up to that point. And we got together and we jammed once. And Tom was like, holy shit, I think I've got the band already. Like he didn't feel like he needed to audition anybody else. And that's kind of where it started at. And it's been going that way ever since. Did you work on his, that Rise record that he released a couple of years ago? Yeah. Yeah, I played all over that. Oh, one other thing I should say. There's, there's one other bit of the story that I forgot. Yeah. So after he had had me come and play, or after he came come to the store and tricked me into playing for him, and then uh before that's pretty slick by the way of him to do it's, that it's actually you know genius I mean? it's yeah. genius i laugh about it we well, there's no pressure it. on you it. right like you're not thinking so there's zero yeah. pressure. and before he came to watch us play at 12th and porter but actually yeah actually before he even came and watched me and tricked me at the store when he when i made that casual comment about well if you need help with that let me know evidently he walked out of the store he got on his phone and he called this dude up in town named Blair Daly. And Blair is a big songwriter in Nashville now. I think there's a group of songwriters here that are doing really well. I think they're referred to as the Four Horsemen. And Blair is one of them. Um, you know, they're like writing songs for like Aaron Jones and all these guys now. Um, but Blair's one of them. And he, I had met Blair at a party at James Michael's house and James Michael and Blair used to come watch my band play. And so evidently Tom walked out and called Blair. Why? Because Blair and Tom's wife, Savannah had written together and been friends and friends for years. And Blair was the godfather to their kid. And he goes, Hey, what about Tony Higby? And Blair goes, Oh my God, that's the dude. He'd be perfect. And he goes, really? And he goes, Oh yeah. And that was what set the whole thing off you know, for him coming back in the store and, and all that stuff. So that's kind of what happened. You're wearing an anthrax shirt. So obviously, you know, Doug music at that time, where were you with Cinderella? Like when Cinderella was really kind of at their heyday. Loved them. Loved them. Um, I could, I Cinderella night songs came out in 86. I mm -hmm. would have been, Shit. I'm trying to think. I was 11. I, mean, I was, yeah, I was like, I was like 12. Right. Uh, I was, I was like, yeah, I was in seventh grade. I was 12 years old. And I remember the first time I heard it, it was because the football players in the gym were lifting weights to it <laughs> in my high school with like night songs cranked up. Mm -hmm. That's the first time I heard that record. Um, and I, I liked it. I liked what I heard. The yeah. album that I actually probably gravitated to the most was Long Cold Winter. And I can yeah. tell you exactly whose Ford Pinto I was sitting in when they threw in that cassette right when it came out. And it just immediately grabbed me. And to this day, Falling Apart at the Seams is maybe my favorite Cinderella song to play every night. That's so. when they transitioned to a lot more blues influence that record, yeah. right? Like, well, the title track is a great blues rocker. Yes, yes. And we, we, we do that from time to time. That's, that's been in our set, you know, usually in the encore. And it's, just, it's a lot of fun.
So did, yeah, did you I, see that? Did you see that tour? I did not. I was, I never got to see Cinderella. They, like I said, shows then were kind of difficult for me to get to. And I didn't get to see that tour. I had a lot of friends that did, because I think they were out with, that was Winger and the Bullet Boys, if I yep, remember right, yep. to that tour. But then there was also a portion of it that I think Extreme was actually on. I had some friends that saw that leg of it too. Um, but uh, yeah, I the first time I actually saw Cinderella was way later. Actually, it was in... It's in Nashville. I think it might have been one of the the first time I saw Cinderella. I think was actually one of those shed shows after I already knew Eric. So it'd been like two thousand four, two thousand five when they were out with Poison. Mm -hmm. um, I saw them do a couple of those tours, and then I also saw them at the Wild Horse in Nashville. They played there, uh, you know. But but yeah, to, to answer your question, I I I love a lot of the eighties you know, glam, hard rock and stuff like that. But I also love Metallica and Anthrax and Megadeth. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that I'm just young enough that there are no incriminating photos of me playing, <laughs> playing at some rock bar in Pekin, Illinois in spandex any, with the hair up here. There's only one, there's only one night that that ever happened. And it was in Atlanta and it was a Halloween show. Like it was literally me and uh, a couple other guys in the band, we literally had this buddy named Curtis who could nail Coverdale, and we did a whole set of White Snake, and we just dressed oh, wow. up basically like White Snake. And the drummer was Rob Hammersmith, who's in Skid Row. Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. I asked, so, I asked that question about that tour just as a little factoid. Uh, Charlie Starr has been on twice, and he said that his first concert was the Long Cold Winter show. I saw that, that makes too, too. that makes sense. And if I remember right, uh, Charlie and Blackberry Smoke had Tom guest with yep. him. Yep, yep. At That's the on Ryman. YouTube. Yeah, at the Ryman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did they do yeah. Heartbreak Station? They, Heartbreak yes, Station correct. and Brown Sugar. Yeah, yeah. That sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. I mean, Tom had told me about that. I feel like I feel like that happened right around the time I started playing with him. Like maybe it's been 10 years ago or so. I mean, no, that's a probably. natural gravitation for a lot of the bands that we talk to, Southern Rock and Blues bands, because of the just heavy, heavy blues influence. That Heartbreak Station record is like the best, I, I've said this many times, the best Stones album since like the 1970s. Like it is, it is like with the Rolling Stones around <laughs> Exile and Becker's Banquet kind of time period. Yeah, I could, I, I totally hear that. Um, and honestly, man, I think Still Climbing is an undiscovered gem by most people. That's a great album, too. Some of that stuff, like Free Will, Free Will Burning's insane. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of great tracks on that record, uh, Flesh and Bone. Uh, but yeah, I I feel like with Cinderella, the same way that I feel about Tesla and Kicks, and there's there's this handful of bands that I feel like were pigeonholed unfairly mm -hmm. to the whole scene yeah. and and got tagged with the dreaded hair metal thing mm -hmm. when at the end of the day if you took night songs and you put it out in 1979 and mutt lang produced it it's going to sound like an acdc record mm -hmm. right the same thing if you take those same songs 
and you put them out in 1994 with Brendan O'Brien producing it or whoever, I think it works then too. I, yeah. I, I really think, and I feel that way about Tesla. I feel that way about Kicks. There's just a lot of bands in that were just great rock bands that for whatever reason, they peaked right at that time. And don't get me wrong, Cinderella's first album cover did not do them any favors. That's what I was going to say. That did not help. But mm-hmm. but but that was, you know, that was what everybody was doing then, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's their first record, and you know that's how they're going to roll. I mean, hell, Andy Johns was, you know, he was the guy that worked on Zeppelin and worked on the Stones and worked on that stuff. And he was chasing, if you listen to that record, he's chasing pyromania as far as sounds, you know. Because back then, he wasn't, Andy John's the legend. He was Andy John's that guy that produced those Stones records like ten years ago, you know, or worked on them. It's, you know, I I I I really think that the production values, you change the production values of a handful of those killer bands from the '80s to match a different period and put them out ten years earlier or ten years later, and they're viewed a lot differently in in the public eye to this day. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. So. You know, and not, not a lot of those bands were using slide guitar on songs predominantly slide guitar not just for you know a layer track or using yeah. those grooves or those blues or you know they weren't and, it, yeah. and cinderella was certainly like just crushing it yeah i agree 200 percent, and that's why i always love that band la guns cocked and loaded i think is another one and exactly. some of the great white stuff junkyard we talked yeah. about on here yeah. absolutely yeah i, I agree 200 um la guns i mean the first record the first record's super punk at times. Oh, the first record, completely. The first record, the first record is more raw than Appetite for Destruction. Yeah, you know it, it really yeah. is. It's Sex you know, Action, Electric, electric Gypsy, like all those man. Uh, it's it oh is yeah, punk. Show No Mercy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's just there, there's some great tunes on there, and then like Cocked and Loaded, like you said, that album just really that's felt like when they really dialed their groove in, they they polished it up enough but it was still clearly LA guns and the songs had just maybe gotten a little better even. So still sticking with kind of Tom Kiefer and um, great vocalist, great guitar player. You're also a very good vocalist. I know you've sung, um, you've been the the featured singer in a lot of your stuff. You play guitar. So how is it like doing stuff with Tom now where, you know, you're kind of working with him both on the guitar stuff and, and the vocals. Like how do you guys figure out what you're doing on stage or what your parts are? Well, so we've got the, the nice thing. And I also remember, and I want to get back to this. You asked me about, about the Rise record. Yeah. I mean, if I played on it, then I cut you off and went backwards. Um, but as far as how we worked that stuff out, you know, I think part of the reason I got the gig with Tom, there's a lot of great guitar players in Nashville. And I, I feel like I, you know, I do what I do pretty well. Um, but I think part of the reason I got that gig with Tom is just because my voice and my register our vocals blend really well and I can sing harmony up over the top of him quite a bit when needed. And harmonies in this band are a big thing. I mean, we're not, Mm -hmm. we're not going out and faking it with tracks. You know, if you ever come see us live, it's pretty obvious. I mean, we got a five piece band plus two female background singers and four of the guys in the band have microphones on stage. So at any point we could literally have six people singing and, you know, as far as working out the guitar parts and the vocals, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. Tom usually has it in his head who's singing what. And mm-hmm. most of the time, if it's a two-part, more often than not, it winds up being me just because of that vocal blend. Um, but then, you know, 
there's some crazy high stuff that's like, you know, that almost that I, I can't even get there, but like that really crazy high stuff, like that stupid crazy high note on somebody save me. It's like that's our keyboard player, Corey. That's all. Oh, know. really? You, yeah, you'd have to put you'd have to put a a heavy set of ice grip on my grips on my nuts to get me to some <laughs> of those notes. You know, it's like that that crazy falsetto, almost whistle voice. You know, um, and uh, you know Billy Mercer, our bass player, he actually almost has a bit of a a lower registered Keith kind of delivery at times. You know what I mean? Just that's kind of the, the nature of his voice. And then we got the two girls and that just adds a whole other depth to it. Uh, and what's funny is our drummer, Jared can sing. He just refuses to, uh, he, he refuses to have a microphone and a drum kit. He thinks it looks dumb. So he can get the good. headset thing. Oh yeah. No, I don't think I would allow that. But, but um, yeah, I don't think anybody would allow that. Um, I think Jared would tell you that if I ever saw him with a headset thing on his head, just to go punch him, you know, it'd be okay. But, uh, and then as far as the guitar parts, it's kind of just whatever's on the record. Um, you know, every once in a while, Tom will lob a part over to me and it's like, Hey, yeah. can you play this part instead of me? Or can we do this or this? But for the most part, it's whatever's on the records. Now with Rise, um, we tracked a lot of that record, um, uh, there's a there there's there's a good bit of basic tracks on that record that are cut live, um, and the way a lot of that would come to fruition was we would uh, we were in a little cramped rehearsal room, we were plugged in direct because the main goal at the time at first it wasn't even to capture drums it was just to work out the arrangements and then go record it properly, and then we were in there and we had the drums mic'd and. We're talking to our engineer and he's like, you know, I got to be honest with you. I think if I got a couple different preamps, compressors and blah, 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 because the kit sounds really good in here. I think we could actually go ahead and just cut drums as we're working these parts out. So after a couple of days of that, of, uh, you know, just, you know, kind of doing rough demos of a couple of things, we just kind of stopped what we were doing and started over. And, you know, basically, and then Billy was plugged into a DI. He had a couple, he has some really cool vintage DIs he would use. Um, me and Tommy plug in direct in some way, shape, or form. He was using like a little kidney bean pod. And I was using a, a Vox little direct tone lab thing that they haven't made in 20 years. Um, but it was just something to, you know, have a distorted guitar tone in our headphones and keep noise out of the room just to be able to capture the drums. And there's a lot of stuff where the bass and the drums, the bass and the drums on the whole record are basically cut together. Uh, and then there's a few tracks where there's an electric part or an acoustic part that it's like, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to do that better in the studio. And the sound's actually really good. Let's just leave it. Like there's a song on the record called Taste for the Pain where I do these volume swells with a real big delay and a bit of verb on it all the way through the song. And I went to recut it with a quote real amp and I listened to it and I just looked over at Tom. I was like, man, I, I don't think I can do it better than that. Like, like we had, you know, done like four or five passes of it and I really had it dialed in by then. I might be able to get it that good again, but that's actually got like a real vibe to it. And he agreed, so we just left it. There's a song on the record called uh, uh, Waiting on the Demons that I really dig. And if you listen to that rec that song, um, the thing that's super cool about that is there's a, you're here, everything you're hearing of the basic track is one take. It's It's a, I mean, it might've been the second or third time we did it, but it's not cut or pasted. It's just one pass and it wasn't intended to be 
the, the take. It was, we had our acoustics plugged in direct. Um, Tom had a, just a sure SM58 there. And he literally cut the vocal live. You can hear his necklaces jingling as he's going up to the microphone. And we recorded it and listened to it. And it's like, oh my God, I think we've got like, the whole take is just the take. And then I went in and overdubbed an electric part and he did his lap steel part after the fact. That was it, <laughs> you know? Like, like it's, that's it, you know? And we weren't expecting that at all, but a lot of that record came together really organically. And the other thing about Tom that was super cool is uh, he's real generous. Like at one point he looked at me and goes, hey, so, and I wasn't thinking anything about this. And he looks at me and goes, hey, so I'm looking at the track listing and there's like however many songs, like 10 songs. And he goes, I'm looking, there's, he goes, there's not a solo on this song. There's not really a solo on this song. He goes, but I've got four solos and you've got four solos. Is that cool? I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Like I, you know, that's awesome. But yeah, you know, so he's, he's thinking about that stuff. He wants to make sure that everybody feels included, you know, and uh, you know, he's, he's, he's really generous with the whole band and he's, he's just a really, really good dude. And he's really, really thoughtful. Yeah. So. I, I kind of figured that that's why I wanted to ask you about how do you come up with the splits or whatever, because when I saw you guys last year at Picktown Palooza, you played a lot of solos. You got a lot of focus uh, up on stage. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, listen, he's Tom Kiefer. He doesn't give a shit. He doesn't give a shit. I mean, it's his name on the marquee. He's gonna right. get, you know. But he didn't seem like he had a big yeah. ego. He's like, "Hey, Tony, it's cool. Like, go ahead." And he do doesn't. Thing. He doesn't care at all. And when I started playing in a band with him, we did two or three shows, and I'm, I don't really ever think about. I've never been in a situation where I ever thought about my performance or how I acted or moved on stage or anything like that. But I've always been a pretty active person. And I don't think about it. I just kind of go out and just, ah, and, you know, it's a rock show. But I remember after a few shows, I asked Tom, I go, hey, so, um, you know, just curious. Like, I'm, I'm not, I think I just said, came out and said, I'm not like stepping on your dick on stage at all, am I? He goes, what? And then I go, you know, I just want to, I know I'm pretty all over the place sometimes and all that. And I just want to make sure that I wasn't, you know, overstepping. He goes, oh, no. He goes, just keep doing what you're doing. He goes, you're not going to outwork me. It's fine. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, cool. You know, and that's kind of always been our understanding. And he's, you know, he encourages it. So, you know, it's great. So I remember that. You're not going to outwork me. It's fine. And he's, he's not wrong, man. He's up there sweating buckets every night. So you, you guys had a shit ton of people that picked town blues. I think they said it was like the biggest crowd they had. I don't know if there's like seven, eight, 9,000 people. There it was a lot. That was what I had heard. Cause we did, um, is that, is it in Pickerington? Pickerington, Ohio. Yeah. And it was like, you're, you're in a parking lot behind basically like school, like a big school building or something, but it was like a giant lot and lawn and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, we had heard that, like, I remember we did the show and I think they said it was, they thought it was close to triple what their biggest crowd had been there, which is yeah. pretty awesome. You know? Yeah. That was, that was a lot of fun. We had, we had a lot of fun on that tour and that was a great package too. Great package. Um, you know, actually over the last two years, the package has been great. Winger and Karabi this year and LA Guns and Faster the year before. Uh, Karabi's you know? a badass himself speaking of vocalist guitar players. <clears throat> Oh, he's so good. And he's one of the funniest human beings you'll ever meet. And he's super nice. And, you know, we've gotten to be friends over the years too, just from doing shows and tours together. And, you know, I 
we both remember the first time we met. It was I was playing a gig with somebody somewhere, and he happened to show up uh, with some friends, and you know, we wound up literally at at, uh, uh, at a bar later that night, knocking beers back, and he was telling me Molly Crew stories. You know, <laughs> I can only imagine. Oh yeah, you know, and so you know, and he's just. He's just a super funny dude. His his wife actually cuts my hair. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, small world, right? <laughs> add, John, add John to the list of the Nashville transplants. I was going to say, yeah, we got this gang, this list of these, these <laughs> gang rockers here growing. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, John's such a mega talent. Brian, do you have key for questions before I move on to uh, Brother Kane? No, I've, I've been, I'm looking forward to the Brother Kane questions. Hit well, me with some brother Kane. Give me some brother Kane questions. What do you got? Well, I mean, what? Listen, Brian and I love Damon Johnson. We love Brother Kane, Skinner, all this stuff. And we—he's been on. He's a super nice. In fact, we're interviewing him again next week. So I want to know how you got on this this brother Kane gig, this tour that's coming up for the 30th anniversary of that first record. Like all 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 the brother Kane, you can tell us. So Damon will very famously tell you uh, that the first time he ever met me. Also, a guitar center. <laughs> he, walk, he walked in. He said, hey, okay. where's the acoustic room? Where do, where do you keep the acoustics? <laughs> was it, it wasn't like he that. He slid the door so, shut. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't like that. No, it was quite the opposite. Um, <laughs> so I had, the Nashville flood had happened. And when I was working there, a uh, local repair guy who's just legend here, his name is Joe Glazer. He's like, it's the shop that everybody takes their stuff to get worked on. It's where Joe Bonamassa sends all his 59 Les Pauls to get refretted. Um, I mean, they refretted Greeny for Kirk Hammett. You know, wow. it's like, that's the shop, right? Well, Joe's been around forever. And, you know, I befriended Joe over the years. And, um, you know, he's a great guy. And when the flood happened, he actually called me up and asked me if I could kind of come help do musical instrument triage over at uh, Soundcheck where all those instruments were underwater. And so I said, yeah, absolutely. So I went over there. I took a day off from work and I went over there and they had emptied all the storage out of all these musicians' guitars and had everything like taped off in sections and everybody's stuff sitting out. And like, I remember taking the front off of Peter Frampton's touring rig with like a couple of plexis and all this stuff in it and water just pouring out of it. Like oh. it was insanity, you know? opened up his guitar ball and his guitars had the binding had exploded off of him, you know? Um, but one of the guys I got to was I got to some stuff that belonged to Damon that he had stored there. And I'd never talked to Damon. I'd seen brother Kane in Peoria, Illinois, um, which Damon will famously tell you is one of their strongest markets. Um, he's like, yeah, we're playing like a club to 300 people one night. Then we're playing the Madison theater in Peoria and it sold out. People are losing their shit, you know, the next night. So anyways, I saw brother Keen there back in the day. I never actually met Damon, never talked to him, but some of his guitars were there and I'm like taking the pickups out of his gold top and trying to let it dry out and, you know, working on his strat and the lacquers like coming off of it in clumps and you know, all this shit. And I wound up somebody gave me his phone number over at SIR and I wanted to call him to tell him what I was doing. So he wouldn't see his guitars all pulled apart. Be like, what the fuck? Yeah. And so we hopped on the phone and we started talking and that's the first time we ever talked. So fast forward, I don't know, maybe nine months to a year later, if I had to guess I'm at GC and Damon comes walking in. You can't miss him. You know, I mean, he's, you know, 
tall dude, real skinny, real has, has a certain look. Um, and I saw him. I'm like, hey, man. He goes, hey, what's up? And I go, I'm Tony Higby. He goes, you, you're the guy that worked on my guitars. And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, thanks, bro, and all that. And I was like, dude, it's cool. Hey, man, just say it right now. This is this is how he describes it. He goes, he goes I'm just saying right now, if you ever decide to do anything with Brother Kane again, give me a call. And we talked for a couple minutes, and he tells everybody, he goes, I went out to my wife, and I got in the car, and he goes, you're never going to believe the balls on this guy at Guitar Center that I just talked to. And, and told his wife, and she was laughing. Like, are you kidding me? Anyways, so... Sure. I guess, you know what it is? If you don't, if you don't shoot your shot, right? So, yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't know anything about that. But years go by, several years go by. And I am a cancer survivor. I had lymphoma 15 years ago. And uh, I beat it and went through all the stuff, chemotherapy and everything. And had a lot of people that helped me beat it and get past it. And uh, we... I've never forgotten that. And there were benefits and fundraisers that were done for me to kind of help me, you know, honestly keep me from losing my house. Oh yeah. That's uh, expensive. Yeah. Cause insurance or not, if you, right. if you got insurance, you can still go yeah. six figures into debt. And I did, uh, you know, so, you know, people helped me and I never forgot that. So I had started doing these cancer fundraisers almost annually, but really what the premise of it was, was if I had a friend, who is in need or a friend of a friend who is in need, somebody we know, because the older we get, the more we see cancer affecting us and our family mm-hmm. and our friends and our loved ones. You know, I would do a fundraiser and I'd call it Chemo Kazi. And the East Side Gamblers, my band, would be the house band. And we play a short set, but then we'd start bringing up all these guests to play with us. So over the years, we've had obviously Tom, uh, Rachel Snake from Skid Row, Brad Whitford, Lizzie Hale, his sang it every one of them she's like is a trooper she'll be able to sing five or six songs and just destroy every night um you know and uh karabi and damon johnson so damon i bumped into him and asked him if he'd be interested in doing that he said absolutely and he came out and he sat in with us and we did we did got no shame i think we did hard act to follow i don't know we did like just a handful of songs and he came in and sat in with the band and he really enjoyed it. Evidently at that point, I think he kind of went, okay, this guy's, this guy's all right. You know? And uh, we started talking and got to be buddies and he was super complimentary. Well, at that point I was already in the Tom Kiefer band. We did shortly after that, we did the monsters of rock cruise. And uh, I was on it with Kiefer and he was on it with black star riders. Mm-hmm. And so he'd come and watch me play with Tom. Of course, I wouldn't watch Black Star Rider set. And then at one point, there was a, a jam that was in one of the lounges that was all of the ex-members of Alice Cooper's band jamming. You know, right. so it was like Damon, Carrie Kelly, uh, who's the who was the drummer of the Black Star Riders? Uh, uh, Degrasso, Jimmy Degrasso. Jimmy Degrasso. Yeah. It was Jimmy Degrasso was drumming. Kip Winger was playing bass. Paul Taylor was up there. Or like all these guys and they just they kind of ran out of songs to play and they just wanted to keep jamming and jailbreak came up and kip's like i don't know jailbreak and i'm like give me the bass and i stood there and played jailbreak 
So, anyways, we get home from this cruise in about a week. How does Kip Winger not know jailbreak? I mean, come on. I don't know. <laughs> the dude but, writes uh, symphonies. He doesn't know jailbreak. <laughs> yeah. I, I listen, I, I'm not judging that. Kip, Kip is a world class musician, much, much greater than Hell I. Yeah, I, just happen, I just happen to know jailbreak. So, anyways, Damon calls me about a week after I get home. He's like, hey, hey, bro. Uh, so I know you're busy with Kiefer and, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm doing Black Star Riders, but you know, I've got my solo band. And when you're available, would you be interested in playing with me and my band? I was like, yeah, I'd love to. So I went out and did two little warm up gigs and some podunk bars like in Kentucky and stuff. And then all of a sudden we did a live record. Like this, the third show I ever played with David was a live album. And that's that Birmingham Tonight show, mm -hmm. if, you, if you find that. And uh, we just kind of stayed intertwined ever since. I played off and on in his solo band uh, for quite a while. And then it got to a point where he was having to take a lot of gigs in that solo band. That quite frankly, the budget only constituted him being able to do as a, as a trio. And so what would happen is it was a big catalog for me to have to try to work up every time we played. I was also juggling the Eastside Gamblers and the Tom Kiefer band. And what would, I, I would, I'm going to do a few shows with them and all of a sudden they go do a tour with Clutch and I would, wouldn't be able to do it because the budget wasn't there or, you know, something like that. And then I'd be away from the material for a few months and I'd come back to it and I'd have to basically half relearn it all again. You know, the hard drive would be full. I'd have to, mm -hmm. you know, get it back in there. And after a while, I was like going through my divorce. I was having a real hard time. I was doing a bunch of stuff. I was like, hey man, I love you, but I can't. I've got to let something go. And right now, this is just the thing that I can't do. And he, he was super supportive and totally understood. And honestly, when I was going through my divorce, he knew what I was dealing with. And he, I confided in him a lot. And he was one of my biggest champions and one of the biggest helps of me getting through that dark period in my life. Because it was, it was really bad. It was, it was rough. I've, I've told people this before, and I mean it wholeheartedly. I've had cancer, and I've been divorced. And I swear to God, getting divorced was actually worse than having cancer, um, at least mentally for me. So uh, it was it was, it was real heavy. I'm really glad I got to the other side. Damon Johnson was a huge part of that, a huge friend. Um, so anyways, stayed in touch a couple of years go by. Um, he shrunk his band down to the power trio and just called it Damon Johnson to get ready, and they made mm -hmm. this killer record. And I had played on Memoirs of an Uprising, which was an album after the live album. That was that was me on there too. Um, so we he did that trio record and then COVID hits. And they um, you know, everything got kind of weird. And then shows obviously, and everybody shut down for a while, and the show started coming back. Damon hit me up because he knew or he'd forgotten, somebody told him. That I'm a bass player too. Like we haven't really touched on this. I don't know if you guys knew this. I moved to Atlanta as a bass player, and I moved to Nashville to join Bombshell Crush as a bass player. But I also play guitar. But most people knew me as a bass player up to that point. I just learned how to play guitar to write, and because I loved playing guitar, it was it was my second instrument. Though. I started bass when I was like 11 and guitar. Never guessed. So, yeah. So, but when in 2005, when Bombshell Crush broke up. I was here already my brother moved here he was a bass player and i wanted to be in a band with him i was like fuck it i'm gonna play guitar in front of the band i would rather front a band playing guitar anyways than bass you're playing bass and that was kind of how that all started and then after a while i've been here so long playing guitar that most people have no idea that i'm a bass player 
So anyways, jump back over. Damon gets offered some shows for the Get Ready going out to open for Skinnerd. Um, and his bass player in the Get Ready wasn't able to do it. And I, I and that's another story, but anyways, his bass player wasn't able to do it. He called a couple other people, including Tony Nagy, who played bass on Birmingham tonight and who played bass on the Mars of an Uprising. And Tony was like, Man, I can't do it. He called Chuck Garrick. Chuck was gonna be in Europe. And then Tony, I guess, called him back and said, hey, what about Tony Higby? And Damon goes, what? And he goes, you know he's a bass player, right? It's like, oh, my God, I forgot. And so he called me up. And so my first gig's back after the pandemic. We're playing in the Get Ready, doing arena shows, opening for Skinner. <laughs> and then Damon was going, would go off stage, and then Tesla would play. And then Damon would go back out with Skinner, because at the time he was just subbing for Gary, which, as we all know, turned into a, a permanent gig right so uh yeah that was kind of when i started playing with damon again and then the brother Kane thing came up and they they went out and they started off with just buck johnson on keys and damon is the only guitar player and it was a lot of that was spearheaded by damon's manager kevin encouraging him to hey man you know you've got this thing that you're not doing anything with and if you're ever going to do it this needs to be now and uh kevin really you know like i said spearheaded that and so they did a few shows as a four piece with Buck Johnson on keys. And uh, I guess Kevin told Damon, Hey man, it sounds great. But you need another guitar player. And Damon said, cool. I'm calling Tony. So he called me up and here we are. So, yeah. And I think up to this point, I played with them all last year at that point, whatever shows there were and getting ready to gear up for this tour. So, Yeah. Those songs are so good. Like Brother Kane just was one of the, one of the soundtracks of my college career mm -hmm. because I graduated high school in 93, college in 98. And like all three of those records were pretty much put out during those years. And especially from the first two, those songs were all over rock radio. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, especially in the Midwest where we're from. Yep. You know? and, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I knew those records well. And um, I'm super super excited to get to play those songs. They're a lot of fun to play. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's a different thing than the Kiefer band. It's, you know, a little more, it can be a little more off the cuff and improv at times. Um, definitely have to stay on my toes. Uh, and to the point where sometimes, you know, you have to almost get a little uncomfortable up there, but it's, it's great, you know, and, it's I, I can't say other things. Like I said, I, I was in the crowd watching Brother Kane too, you know. <laughs> and uh so to get get to get up there and play those songs with him is 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 a lot of fun. It's interesting when Jason mentioned the first Brother Kane record and when we had Damon on, we went in quite a big detail about how they recorded that record and all that. But one thing I'd mentioned was like that record came out right around the same time as Cry I Love Brother. And I kind of felt yep. like that was kind of like that the Black Crows kind of kicked the door open for that kind of music and those were the two bands and that's when damon said well i'm a great friend of oddly and 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 it's interesting their careers took like a different like the same kind of trajectory and i think nowadays like cry of love and brother kane would have survived in the way it is now and you know but nonetheless but yeah that's kind of interesting that those records yeah. came out at the same time and 
Yeah, I mean, I and 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 I had both those records at the same time, and you know, I I think, um, yeah, I mean, those songs are both those records have such good songs and such good, you know, the the vocals are great on both of them and the playing's great on both of them. I mean, but yeah, I agree two hundred percent. The Crows have absolutely kicked that door open. You know, they they the Crows made it. In a time when grunge had taken over the world, the Crows managed to make it okay to just be rock and roll, mm-hmm. you know. And I think there's a few other bands that kind of snuck through there too. Even, even yeah, like Lenny Kravitz a little bit, like the retro well, thing. Yeah, yeah, like like well, like the Four Horsemen. You know, yeah, yes. I mentioned that um, them too when we talked. Yeah, to them. you know, yeah, it's just kind of there. There was some stuff like that. I mean, you know, to some extent, Jackal, I guess, although mm-hmm. they're kind of their own tangent. Um, you know. It, it, yeah, I think I think the Crows, like I said, the Crows made it acceptable to just be a rock and roll band, and to, and that was cool, you know. Interesting, quick note on the Four Horsemen, because I've read it in so many interviews, but but uh, Charlie Starr, that Telecaster with the really nice artwork, he plays it at the end, yeah. and not much left to me. He bought from Haggis from the Four Horsemen. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, and his Black Les Paul Jr. bought that. Rick Richards used to own it. It was yeah. in the shop and he bought it. Yeah. I, you know, it's cool when you hear of guys getting guitars in their possession that mean something to them that belong to somebody who maybe was important to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Baird lives here in town and mm-hmm. I've got to be friends, friendly with Dan over the years. And he's, he's a wonderful guy, funny as shit, but he has Steve Marriott's old telly. Wow. Yeah. And uh, he's, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's the keep your hands to yourself guitar, but he has okay. Marriott's old telly. And, wow. um, you know, he's, you know, he, he told me a story about playing at the star bar in Atlanta, Georgia and five points in the black crow or, and no, I'm sorry, in the Georgia satellites yeah. before they were signed and he was on stage and, uh, maybe I should be telling his stories, but it's such a good story. I'll tell it. I don't think we'll be offended. And, uh, he was on stage playing and, uh, he said that um, he's up there and he looked over. I think maybe it's Rick Richards walked over and tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, man, check it out. Third booth over on the left. And he looks over and Steve Marriott's sitting there with some chick. And Steve lived in Atlanta at the time. And uh, he's like, holy shit. So they were got done with their set. In between sets, he walked up to him, introduced himself and, and made small talk and all that. And, and uh Hey, would you want to get up and jam one with us? Yeah, sure. What do you want to do? I don't know. And they, they, they called out. He called out some Chuck Berry song. He's like, "All right." So they have Steve come up on stage, and he walks up, and I guess he's got like a like a Jack and Coke and a cigarette, and he just walks up and he turns around, he sits down on the drum riser and grabs the microphone, and and he's like, "A," he goes up, B, up, C, up. All the way up to like E, right? Like he goes up like five keys. <laughs> okay. And they fired into it. And I, he said, Steve opened his mouth and just blew the roof off the place. Just literally went from off to on 12, like that. And he said, for like three minutes, it was the most insane thing you've ever heard in your life. And then that was it. Done. And we were all like, holy fuck. And Steve turns around, I guess Steve turned around and got a cigarette and his drink and he took a sip of his drink. He looked at me and goes, 
I bet you just thought I was some old fuck now, didn't you? And he walked <laughs> off the stage. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I would have paid to have been there to see that, you know? Because <laughs> Mary is one of my favorites of all time. Like, just that, those pipes. Not to mention what a great player he was on top of it. But God, that voice is just angelic. Just insane, you know? No skinny little white guy should be able to sing like that. Yeah, it's like well, like Chris speaking of the crows, Chris Robinson, the same with the soul and stuff. This t- skinny white dude. Oh yeah, absolutely. I love it. Mike Ferris, man. Just soul just oozes from that dude. You know, you can't you can't get around it. Um, you know, I, I I I love it, man. Paul Rogers obviously is you know one of the goats. Uh, you know, but yeah, just there, there's something to be said about you know that that affectation of being able to take really like soul and blues and inject it into rock and not have it feel forced. And all those guys we just mentioned, it never sounds forced or contrived. It just sounds like that's who they are. And it's not like country music where, you know, (laughs) everybody sings with this dumb fucking accent. And it's like, it's like, Hey, Hey, uh, you know, jason whatever you know the cool name of the month is that everybody has uh i know that you were born and raised in poughkeepsie like don't try to sing at me like you're from deep in the heart of texas like just knock that shit off now you know it's, it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't read it doesn't translate Man, when i like it, when they do the rapping with the twanging twangy voice oh, god i can't i I can't. I would <laughs> I would rather have my balls pounded yeah. flat with a wooden mallet than play in one of those bands. I just can't. I will just sell I'll sell my shit and go sell cars. I'm good. I, I can never fucking do it. It's awful. It's awful. God. <laughs> it's the fucking worst. It is so bad. I if you if you ever if you ever want to know where I'm at in Nashville, your first clue is not on Broadway. Right. Have not, the, the, <laughs> not the bro country rapper bars. Jesus. It's the fucking oh God. Oh anyways, just watching people zooming around downtown on those fucking scooters oh, drunk my. and falling down they got their the fucking their femurs sticking out of their fucking skin and all the <laughs> drunks are standing over well, and looking at them well it's nothing uh, but like bachelorette parties and like out of what's up with like know? the, the pedal bar things <laughs> never understood it it's like why would you want to work so hard to get drunk right <laughs> you can go stand still and get drunk way easier this motherfucker's you're making somebody you're paying somebody yes. to pedal his sh- bar all over town and drink his shitty keg beer upcharged beer or whatever you have god like cardio and booze just are not should never be a thing it's like I don't understand it at all. I, I, I like, would imagine I would imagine that Broadway in, in Nashville is kind of like how people that live in Las Vegas never go to the strip. And like I've heard like uh I was when did I read an interview with Slash and he goes, well, I haven't been down to the Sunset Strip in years. <laughs> like so oh. people in Nashville never go to Broadway. <laughs> oh yeah, no, locals locals do not go to Broadway. I don't know any locals. Unless unless you're down there playing gigs uh as a musician. Mm-hmm. 
you know, in your local, for the most part, you just don't go down there. You know, it is, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, a lot of people call it redneck Vegas. Um, I can see the connotation. It's just, it's nuts. I, I, I mean, I get too close to it. Like I go see a show at the Ryman yeah. and I can like well, look down the end of the block and I can right. see it. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, how do we get our car out of here pointed the other direction? So we don't even have to cross Broadway. Like, <laughs> You're, it's just it gives you it gives me anxiety uh, <laughs> fucking it's the worst i'm the most i'm the most un-nashville person i know that lives in nashville most days like i'm i don't i don't care for country music and i yeah i but there's a lot of great people here and there's a lot more to nashville than just country now and that's why i'm still here you know there's no doubt about it yeah so, i got go ahead brian like places like you mentioned, like the family Washington stuff, like with those jam sessions, even today, like where is that like somewhere totally not near there? Man, there. Yeah. Listen, the family wash was a little bitty spot in East Nashville. That's not there anymore, sadly. But, you know, then we get other places popping up like the Cobra is kind of a good dirty dive rock bar in East Nashville. And, you know, I've seen a couple of shows there. I saw Junkyard there. Um, last year and it was a blast i saw um is it pump five i think is what they're called i went down there to see them because my buddy alex kane plays guitar with pump five i don't know if you know alex or not um you should interview alex you want to talk about a funny dude you remember the band you remember the band life sex and death yeah 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 he was a guitar player in life sex oh was he Yes, but he's got he's he plays in a few different things. Was uh, was that singer? Was that like like a, a, a theatrical thing, or was that guy actually like a vagrant? Was that supposed to be like the theme of, and he was a normal person or what? <laughs> I have never gotten a straight answer out of Alex, <laughs> and and I just leave it alone at this point. Um, but uh, you know, Stanley. But I mean, that record is a monster album. That record is so fucking good. Um, but Alex's, you know, Rockford, Illinois, just, you know, or Chicago, Illinois, favorite band ever is Cheap Trick, uh, you know, just informed by all the all the greats, has amazing stories. And, you know, he's like, he's playing with that band Pump 5 now, then he plays with this other band Shark Island sometimes. And now oh, he's yeah. also playing guitar. Yeah, I know Shark and now, Island, yeah. Yeah, and now he's playing guitar with Donnie V. So, you know, uh, and Alex, a lot of people don't know this. Alex was the guitar player in Enough's Enough before uh, uh, Derek Frigo. Really? Yep. So, like I said, there's a lot of meat on that bone. He's an interesting dude. He's got a lot of layers. And he's one of the he's one of the best guitar players I've ever seen in my life. He's so good. (laughs) But he's very creative. I, f- I feel the need to share a Nashville story with you guys. Brian, I think you've heard it before, but Tony, obviously you haven't because we've never talked to you. But a couple of years ago, two years ago, we were down there in the spring, a bunch of people to see um, Trigger Hippie, Steve Gorman's band. band when they yeah, yeah. I saw people. Trigger Hippie once. They're so good. Love those guys. Uh, they're playing third in Lindsley. So yeah. the next night, same, you know, everybody was from out of town, so we're going to go out. And then um, there's an artist by the name of Jax Hollow out of Nashville, who Brian and I have, have met through the podcast. is really great. She was playing, like, in a hotel lobby bar, you know, really, really close to, um, really, really close to uh, uh, Broadway. What the fuck? Thank you. Broadway. 
So we yeah. see her. I saw I saw a certain level of anxiety in your face. And I just yeah. assumed you were probably talking about Broadway. There's emotional Anyways. trauma. I'm having trouble like remembering, you know, it's like it, it's, uh, it's always PTSD. I saw I, I could I could see the PTSD. It's all good. Thank you for helping me. And then another artist we'd had on who's who's really come a long way, Leilani Kilgore, who's kind of doing her own thing, but she yep. is doing a lot I'm like in the, in the bars and Broadway. So she was playing at one of those places. So we were going to go over to see her. We end up showing up, trying to leave, and we couldn't get the fuck out of downtown Nashville. Like no, no lie. Me, my wife, and our friend Brett Hogan, he's probably listening to this. None of us had cell phone reception. We couldn't get an Uber. It was cold as fuck there. A snowstorm had come in like April out of the blue. It, it was awful. We were walking, trying to get cell phone reception, trying to find a cab. Couldn't fucking find any way to get the hell out and get back to where our hotel was over towards the Gulch area. Okay. And uh, we thought we were going to die. It became escape from New York, but it was really escape from like <laughs> Nashville. You know, I'm pretty sure I saw Snake Plissken walking around. Jesus, yeah, he was out. probably he was probably hanging out over at Kid Rock's honky tonk, and you know, he just wandered too far down the street. <laughs> and we were going walking in these bars just one to get warm because we couldn't again get a cell phone signal to call him. I don't know what was going on with the cell reception. Something goofy was going on. Like going in these big pieces of shit that really didn't have people in it. And I had like DJs and not live music like that were dance clubs. We thought we were going to die. We, honest to God, we thought we were going to die downtown on Broadway and never be able to get back ever again. Jesus. And we and got back. We got back. We, well, funny stories, we died. <laughs> okay <laughs> you're talking to a ghost what, what was it easter wait what happened <laughs> dude we resurrected on sunday resurrected ourselves <laughs> no and brett hogan fortunately at some way shape or form when we got a couple blocks out of out of broadway he was able to get a cell phone reception called one of his buddies who thankfully was able to show up and get us and drive us so brett hogan thank you thanks your buddy because <laughs> We still talk about that or like text about that to this day that we honestly thought we were going to die and had the indignity of being on Broadway when we died. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of ways I could think of to die that would be at the bottom of the list. <laughs> yeah, uh, I didn't want to say I got COVID. Go out. I didn't want to say I got COVID too from whatever like shit kickers saloon or whatever the hell we were. <laughs> Well, there was a lot of that going around then too. Well, there was, and like we were trying to li obviously limit like the amount of places. So anyway, so yeah, it yeah. was it was more traumatic than what I described it, but it was weird because again, no cell phone signals. It was extraordinarily cold. A snowstorm had come in the night before, and like that was it. We were gonna die. Yeah. I haven't been back since, dude. Dude. Well, I mean, come back to Nashville. I've been back to Nashville, but it's not. Don't go back down there. Yeah, you know, you know what's up. I, so. I know, and never, never again, Brian, never again. So when we're in Nashville, if you ask me to go to Broadway, never again. I was there for like two hours when we went to Rock and Pod, but I just went down there because I went to tour the Ryman and RCA Studio B, the old one, which yeah. was really yeah, fascinating, yeah. by the way. And a picture of Roy, yeah, oh, Roy, yeah, Roy yeah. picture of Roy Orbison with all his glasses on. All that old recording yeah. equipment and stuff. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's it's a trip. I uh we got we we ended our tour this summer at the Ryman. And that's the first time I've ever played it. 
and uh that was uh, man what, a, what an, it, it's yeah there's it sounds great it's it's just got a whole energy to it that I couldn't yeah I I can't really explain I I know as a fan I felt it in the audience before you know and I've seen so many different kinds of bands there I mean I've seen you know I saw uh, the tribute to Les Paul there after he passed away with all these you know killer musicians that were a his backing band at the Iridium and b like everybody from Jennifer Batten to Zach Wild that I saw. I've seen Brian Setzer do the Christmas show there. Oh. I've seen, I've seen Queens of the Stone Age there. I've seen the Rack and Tours there. Um, you know, I've seen a, I saw, saw Anthrax there, right? Um, Which is weird but, thinking of Anthrax playing there, though. You know what I mean? Like, it, I, I, I mean, I saw Wasp there. I mean, granted, I there was so many tracks going on. I don't really know <laughs> what I saw, but well, you, you saw know. Wasp. You heard? Me. I, I saw him. Um, <laughs> But uh, that's maybe a fair, fair thing to say. Um, but, anyways, I just, you know, they were. It, it's just it's such a magical place. And when I when we went out on stage, you know, it's just a different feel, a different look, and the balcony just feels like it's right there, you know. And the whole vibe of the room when you got to play, it just feels like everybody's right there, and. It's, you know, I've never felt that. I don't know if I've ever felt that connected and that close to that many people in one room that we've ever played before. Just because, like I said, it's just you can you can just see everything, you can see everybody, and you just, everybody just feels like they're right there with you. And it sounds great. And the stage, the size is like almost perfect, and you know, just I I, I can't explain it, but it's just what a great room. I I hope that's not the last time I get to play that. And, uh, you know, that's definitely, I'll check that one off. That was a big check off the bucket list, you know? So. Um, I don't think it'll be the last time. And it's, it's, I've toured it. I've never seen a show there, but they let, they would let us go up on stage and see kind of where that centers, like the sweet spot is of the stage and everything. It was super cool. And it is on my bucket list to see a show. Yeah. Oh, it's, you gotta go. There's, there's not a bad seat in the house. I will say, try not to sit under the balcony. Um, that's the only thing that, I mean, it's still a good seat, but you right. know, if you can just be out just in front of the balcony on the floor or in the balcony is great. You know, I saw the zombies there um, and wow. I was in the balcony and they sounded, the sound up there is so good. So I anthrax in the balcony too. I saw Bill Burr at the Ryman. Oh my God, really? comedian. Yeah, and he, he filmed the stand-up special there. It's on Netflix. It was one of the funniest specials he's ever done. So, yeah, I, I, I saw that there. So, yeah, I've been there a bunch. It's an amazing place. Brian, we're going to have to go there. We're going to pick a show and meet there. We will. Yes, yes, we should we should make that happen. Let me know what it is and when you're going to be here. Yes. And if, I can we'll and if I can join you, I will. That would be great. Right <laughs> I'm into it. I'm into it. Hey, we could do Escape from Broadway too. <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, you guys can. I'm going to do what I told you. I Maybe we could rent one of those, you know, b- rolling bar. cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's just let's just let's just pedal till we vomit, Natty White on Broadway. Awesome. While wearing cowboy hats. Oh yeah, get the boots too. Get the whole the whole Nash Lorette outfit. 
you know, <laughs> yeah, that going on. Oh, hey, Jason, is it that time of the show? <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, my God. Tony, I know we've kept you a while and we appreciate it. You have a couple oh, minutes for good. some stupid questions. I, this, this will be what gets me in trouble. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll start out some, some, you know, some normal questions before we get to stupid stuff. All right. Uh, what, what is the worst guitar you've ever owned? Or bass. You can pick because you play both. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I've always been real picky about stuff I've owned. What's the sh- but even like starter shit, you usually get like something crappy, right? Yeah, but man, I I, I guess quality wise, the worst thing I ever owned um, when I started playing bass. Actually, you know, the the worst thing I ever owned when I when I, the first reasonably nice bass I ever bought myself that I thought was reasonable was what kind I could afford was this Ibanez. It was like the cheapest Ibanez 80s looking bass you could buy. And I bought it new. And in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't terrible. But I remember the knobs constantly fell off of it. And I didn't understand how to spread the pots. Yeah. Like to respread the pots out to hold the knobs. So I got frustrated one day and I just super glued the knobs back onto it. So anybody, if one of, if one of those pots ever went bad, they were fucked. They were never going to pop. Yeah, exactly. So that, 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 that would be what would, that would be that one. For Did sure. it at least sound decent or was the whole thing just kind of crummy? It, it was okay. I mean, okay. I don't know. I, I didn't have the most discerning ear back in the day, you know. But uh, it, it looked like it looked like something you would see in a tour tour video, and at the time, I thought that was all right. Fucking great! Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, we talked a lot about other people owning other people's guitars, like you know, Greeny and all that. If you could own any guitar based from any artist that you want, what would you what would you get? Ginger Wild Hearts Les Paul twenty five fifty. Why do you choose that? Okay, so I told you, like, they're one of my favorite bands. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm When I say that, I mean, I'm talking top three all time. Maybe some days, number one. Uh, musically, they just, there's so much going on there. There's so much depth. Ginger's, you know, very publicly, if you, if you follow him online and read about him, he's, you know, he's very troubled and he's got a lot of, uh, you know, he deals a lot of depression and, you know, some stuff like that, but but his his songwriting genius and just the way it flows out of him so effortlessly is just really something to be admired in my eyes. But he had this for the bulk of the Wild Hearts, you know, career up until I forget how many years ago, probably 10, 12 years ago, I think it's 10 years ago, he had this Les Paul custom and it was a 1978 Les Paul Custom 2550, which was the anniversary model that said 25 slash 50 in the headstock. You remember those guitars? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You usually see them in Tobacco Sunburst, and they have that little fine tuner tailpiece on them. But they made a few in white, and they made a few in black, and he had a black one. And that thing clearly was the guitar he took to do every single gig with forever, and it was just covered in stickers, and the finish was just completely gone off the back of it. And it's just oozed so much mojo. And there was some world 
catastrophe that had happened. I don't remember if it was like maybe a, I think it was a tsunami that had happened. And he put that guitar up on eBay and sold it and donated the proceeds wow. to, to that, which is just huge because he's by no means a rich man. Um, and if I would have had the money and there was no way, I think, I think back then it sold for, I want to say like around 12 grand. If I had the money, I'd have bought that guitar. If that went yeah. online right now and I could get it for that price, I'd buy that guitar. Yeah. Even if I had to sell and for it, a good cause. You're like, hey, honey, it's for a good cause. I would buy, that, I would buy that guitar and it would go on towards me because that guitar needs to be played. But I just, or I would buy that guitar and I'd play it for a while. And then if you ever wanted it back, I'd give it to him. So, but that, that, that's just, that's the one. And it's so deep and left field for most people, but that'd be the one for me. How do you like to spend your time days off on touring? Golf. We were talking about golf earlier, so you take your clubs with you? They're under the bus, and me and the drummer, Jared, play golf whenever we can. Um, Or I go record shopping. So, which uh, is evidenced by the, you know, couple thousand albums that are sitting between my upstairs and my downstairs now. So, but... uh, um, I will say, though, I've bought so many albums on tour over the years that I've actually gotten to a point where there's not much that I don't have that I want. You well, know, what's your white whale record right now? Man, there's a the white whale right now. Is an oddball one. I would actually love to get a copy of the second Shock and Messiah record. Second Coming. There was a time seven or eight years ago where you could buy that for 70 or 80 bucks. And I just thought, I was like, oh, I'll get to it later. Oh, I'll get to it later, blah, blah, blah. Now it's a four or $500 album. Oof. And you just never see it. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of White Whale records before that. And I found most of them. I mean, the one I actually thought I'd never find, and I've actually found two in the last few years, is Badlands Voodoo Highway. Oh. Um, so, they were a great band, man. Such a good band. And I I I bought one and that's my copy. And then I came across another one and I bought it because I was like, I'm gonna have a friend who wants this record and I'm gonna have it. And I literally just I actually wound up trading that record as a partial payment for a a gold fractured mirror Ibanez Iceman. So um that, that record was part of the payment for that guitar. So the extra one but yeah um and then jellyfish we've talked about i've got reissues about those records i've got an original press of the first one i don't have an original press of spilt milk and those are like three or four hundred dollars if you can find them and i don't know that i could ever see myself party with the cash to do it but yeah that original original press of spilt milk would be pretty awesome all right for everybody that's listening right now there are holidays birthdays for tony make sure you find these records yes. and He'll answer his social media yes. if you're nice to him. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, this two-part question. What is your favorite guitar solo to cover, and what's your favorite guitar solo that you've written? Hmm. My favorite guitar solo to cover... Yeah, I mean, it could be when you're just screwing around in your own house, too, not necessarily on stage. You know what? I, I'm just thinking some stuff. Uh, one of my favorite ones that just pops in my head immediately was 
the East Side Gamblers, one of the Kimikazes we did, we did uh, we did Highway Star with Lizzie Hale singing. Yeah. You oh, can find wow. that on YouTube. Yeah. yeah. So it's me and um and and the band, like it was it wasn't just it was me and Josh from the Gamblers, but Jimmy Chalfont was drumming on that song and Rachel Boland was playing bass and Lizzie Hale was singing. Wow. We did Highway Star and Tyson Leslie was playing keys. And Josh and I played that that solo just like the record with the harmonies. And uh that was a blast. I loved playing that. Not the hardest solo I've ever played, but it was just so much fun to play. Um, and then my favorite solo I've probably ever written or put on tape. Oh, man, the, the one that pops to mind that I, I point to pretty quickly is uh, there's a song on the last Kiefer record um, called Break It Down. In uh, that solo, I wrote that solo in my head in a matter of a minute from hearing the riff for the first time before I ever knew how I was going to play it. And uh, when I listen back to that one, I feel like that the beginning, the middle, the end of that are perfect. It's my one of my favorite things I've ever put to tape for sure. I'm going to have to go back and revisit both. I'm actually going to look for that YouTube uh, clip too. I, I just took notes on that one. I'm, I got, I, I gave you some homework. Yeah. I, look, I got a full page of notes here on my tablet, on my, you know, my little spiral feel, notebook thing. I, I feel both good and bad. I'm, you know, so sure I feel about it. If I didn't care to do it, I wouldn't write it down. Jason is the secretary of the podcast. Yeah, Brian will ask <laughs> nice. me questions later on. Like, what was that? What was what was what was yep. Tommy talking about? I'm like, here you go. Yeah. Here's the notes. You know, somebody's got to yes. do it. Uh, do you have a favorite place to eat on the road? Any specific restaurant somewhere, a chain, like somewhere you always got to hit passing through town? I love breakfast. Like, I love breakfast. Yeah. I try to find a diner or a breakfast spot or whatever to hit anytime we get a chance. So if I am in a town that has a snooze AM eatery, I will go find it and have breakfast. Uh, or... Um, you know, there's a couple spots uh, that we played. There was whenever we played Vamped in Vegas, uh, which we've done, we haven't done in a while. But whenever we played there, there's a spot next door I think called Hash House and Go Go or something. Killer breakfast spot. So I always, you know, I always love that. There's another place in Vegas that's uh, a bit of a drive off the beaten path um, called uh, Capos, and it's a Italian restaurant set up like a speakeasy where you have to go through a door knock on a door they slide the thing and like what do you want you know <laughs> table for two hang on <laughs> you know and then a couple seconds later they let you in you go in and it's like all like old red leather booths and red leather chairs at the tables and it's dimly lit and they got a sinatra impersonator singing on stage and wow and, but the food is fucking amazing it's so good so i can't recommend that place highly enough I rarely have a side question in the in the the, the you know lightning round, whatever you call it. But uh, did uh, you mentioned vamped? And have you ever jammed with Count Seventy Seven? You know, Dan. I'm Coker not. Or... I'm not. I'm not. I've gotten to be friendly uh, with the guitar player in that band, but I've never actually met Danny. And uh, um, you know, but I. I mean, we we played there, I think, three times. So, 
But for whatever reason, Danny's just never actually in town when we play there. So, anyways, it is what it is. So we know you golf, and when you're yeah. not doing music or golf, do you read or do you stream or none of the above? I do love to get wrapped up in some shows from time yeah. to time. Yeah, yeah. I uh, definitely have my shows that I love to watch, like right now. Well, what would you recommend for us? Like, what's something good you've been into recently that we should check out? Well, let me think. Um, winning time, the rise of the LA Lakers. Is that good? Because I see that all the time, like advertised. It's, Is it good? It's fantastic. John C. Riley's a national treasure. He's good treasure, in everything. As far as he's I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the guy that they got to play, um, the guy that they got to play Magic Johnson looks so much like him. It's crazy. Yeah, the guy, yeah. That, the guy that they got to play Larry Bird, it's uncanny. But um, there's so many good actors in that show. The story is told so well. And, you know, I that one I'm really digging into. And it's just now on season two. Another one that I love watching that's just completely ridiculous is The Righteous Gemstones. Oh, that's so good. I love Danny McBride. Oh, yeah. Anything he does is just gold. Vice Principals, Eastbound, Eastbound and Down. Eastbound and Down. It's one of my favorites yeah. still. Absolute Tropic Thunder. Him and that yeah. was ridiculous too. But, but The Righteous Gemstones might be his, his crowning moment so far. It's just so out of hand. And, I, and just when I watch that show and think, they can't act up any more than they already have. They figure out a way to top themselves. It's just out of control. So I love those. Shows. I need, I need baby Billy's Bible bonkers in my life. Yes. Don't we all, <laughs> don't we all And Walton Goggins? Oh, that new limited run of Justified justified. Just, just saw it. Yes. It's great. That was awesome. Um, they set that up look. for another season. Right? I know. They I, said, can't I, I can't please. wait. And then, and then for something more serious, though, uh, uh, Billions on Showtime is really, really well done. And there's some good tie-ins to music, too. The, the guy who writes that show is a big music geek. So um, I think he might have even used to work for MTV years ago. But, like, okay. there's a cameo there's a cameo on one of those episodes by Metallica. There's a cameo. Really? But it's, yeah, but it's about, like, Wall Street and insider trading and stuff like right. that. And it's done really, really well. It's a great show. And they're on their last season right now. And up to this point, it's not disappointed. I've heard so, that's good. And also Secession on HBO is supposed to be really good as well. I feel like I'm going to get into that at some point. I just haven't started Yeah, yet. I haven't either. I'd, I'd rather watch the sports series on the Lakers first. Watch that. You'll love it. Okay. I'm totally I'm sold. I will. I, we've got, Brian, we've got good advice. We trust Tony on this one. I, I think so. Do you stream music ever? Or are you more like physical media stuff? I I try to I I try to own physical media of everything that I like. I stream when it's convenient, like in my car. Yeah. Uh or whatever on the bus. Obviously I'm not hauling, you know, a case yeah, of albums and a turntable <laughs> on the bus. But you know, and listen, I never got rid of my CDs. I got like, you know, fifteen hundred CDs sitting to the left of me right now. But uh so I try to own everything in some sort of physical media. Because once you own it, it's yours. You know, yep. you never know what's going to happen with streaming or any digital downloads or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, I stream. I stream when it's convenient. I stream when it's convenient. It makes sense. What are the last three songs or artists you've streamed? Uh, well, the new Royal Blood record I was oh. listening to today. That's Is that a cool good album. 
Yeah. It's good. I really liked the first two. The third one got kind of weird. I didn't know mm-hmm. where they were trying to go. It sounded like they're trying to get poppy. And this record sounds like they went, oh, wait a minute, what we're doing. Let's get back to let's get back heavy to beat. what we do good. Yeah. So it definitely trends back in that direction. And it's really good. Uh, that record. Um, oh, another bucket list album. Actually, this might be top of the list. Is the Taylor Hawkins and the Coattail Riders uh, Red Light Fever album. It's the one they did back in like 2010. That's the, Is there that's a the car on the cover of that or something? No, no, like no. It's rod? like it's got like a picture, almost looks like Red Rocks on the cover. It's like okay. it's like mountains and all that and a blue sky. But that used to be like a sixty dollar record. Then he died. And now it's like a two to three hundred dollar album. Right. It's like yeah. a horse. Um, you know. But I would love to get my hands on a copy of that. I love, love, love that album. Um, and I have to listen to it on streaming because I don't have a physical copy of it. Uh, so that one, and then. Uh, Phil X and the Drills would have been the thing I was listening to probably before that. So I really, I think Phil's special. And uh, there's some really great, fun, catchy, kind of poppy hard rock songs going on there. I think it's awesome. What is your snack food, like guilty food pleasure of choice? Ben and Jerry's, half-baked. Uh, you had that ready. Like you had that and you already cocked and ready to go. <laughs> Oh no, it's it's me going to the grocery store and not walking down that aisle is a fucking struggle every <laughs> single time. I I probably gain I'm tall, so I wore it well, but I probably gained 20 pounds after when I got divorced from eating my feelings, which is something that I didn't know that I did. And I swear to God, most of that was eating a carton of that shit every night for months. So, anyways. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. You just ate I ice cream. Yeah. I just fucking ate ice cream. God, so. rock stars these days, Brian. You know they're all. You know they're, it's really like lame. Yeah, stuff. and then yeah, and then <laughs> better I got Ben and Jerry's than heroin. <laughs> yeah, and then I got and then I got a Peloton uh, to try to, to get rid of it <laughs> all go. before I had to before I had to get serious about touring again, or as I like to call it, the crying machine. Um, <laughs> you know, it's brutal, but yeah. So yeah, that that was an easy answer easy okay um all three of us are are grew up in the 80s right like a lot of formative years in the 80s the 80s was known for having very special episodes particularly of like usually family or kid friendly shows um yeah what scarred you worse and maybe and you can tell if you didn't see this episode that's fine because we'll just we'll, we'll wild card it but when punky brewster's friend locked herself in the freezer and almost asphyxiated and died or when Dudley on uh, different strokes was molested by Gordon Jump, the bike shop owner. Oh, the Dudley one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Punky's friend was fine. The Dudley one messed me up. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> that. In different strokes, you don't remember this two part uh, episode. That mm. was that that got that got so unexpectedly dark. Like that episode, like that was so like, I did not tune into different strokes for that at all. No, that was like, well, Dudley was was his best friend was, was Arnold drum Drummond's best friend. And they, they started going to a bike shop after school. Right. Tony and help, help me remember this correctly. And it was owned by Gordon jump from like WKRP in Cincinnati. He was a tag repairman and all that stuff like that. Known to be like a goofy guy. Well, he started yeah. lulling these kids with, you know, started giving them wine and showing them X-rated cartoons and taking pictures of them, like jumping with their 
their shirts off. Like this is like supposed to be a kid show. Yeah. And lo and yeah. behold, yeah. he's a basically a child molester. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I, I hadn't thought about it in years. Thanks for dredging that back. I, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> but yes, that's the one right there. That's it. Oh, it's terrible. I, I could never watch WKRP in Cincinnati the same way ever again. God, God. that's still one of my favorite shows ever. Doc, Dr. Great Johnny show. Fever, Venus Flytrap, Travis. God, what a show. What a show. And Bailey was definitely, she was the one. Oh, Not Bailey Jennifer Quarters. Bailey. Bailey oh. Quarters was it. Yes. They yes, tried to so ugly her up or nerd her up with those big oversized glasses, but no, it didn't yeah. work. You tell. Yeah, dude, she was always she was always the hot one. And there was always that, you know, she was just she was like primed for that typical 80s. Uh, let's take the nerdy girl and give her a makeover and send her to prom to be the prom queen movie. You know, she was like that chick. Put her hair know? up, give her glasses and like it's like it's like, know, it's like, like they, they primed her they primed her for that position and they just never gave her the makeover. Yeah. Uh did did you watch Growing Pains? I did. I don't know how much of it I remember, but I did watch it. Yeah. Well, since we did 80s, 90s trivia, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a question out to both of you. So Brian, you get a chance to answer this as well. There was a very special episode of Growing Pains where Kurt Kurt Cameron, Mike Seaver, and his buddy Boner and those guys went to a party and they were offered cocaine by a girl who later went on to be a pretty well-known actress on TV and film. Do you know who that actress was? I do not. I don't know. The original Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Christy Swanson. No shit. No shit. I bet she did some cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got our sound bite. And Brian, the episode is now over. <laughs> I bet she did some cocaine. <laughs> Christy, if you're listening, we apologize. It's all good. It's all good. Listen, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm not judging. Who was the 80s? I, Who was it, right? Yeah, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, hey, listen I, I'm not going to lie. I've never actually ever done cocaine, but I've got a lot of friends who have, and I don't hold it against them. So You do Peloton. You don't drink anymore. You're cutting back on your coffee. And, like, you never did – you're, like, the least cool rock star. <laughs> I know, right? I just know about – I listen, I'm so disappointed. My whole thing is, I've had cancer once. I'm trying to avoid getting it again. That's kind of my stance in life. <laughs> I, I think that's probably a pretty good, a pretty good goal to have. Yeah, right, right. You know, listen, just try to try to try to prioritize. So, I'm I, I'm too tired to be a drunk. I'm I'm too busy and way too tired all the time to be a drunk. I well, I'd never I'm do with you. Done. Like it makes you tired. It makes my stomach upset. Hangovers. Like it's a, there's nothing positive about it anymore. Exactly. Exactly. Just don't drink, kids. Yes, yes. Unless you're Christy Swanson, then do then do cocaine. You can do, you can do drugs with Kurt Cameron. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! All right. <laughs> if you could pick a touring bill of any band that you've been in with any band that you love, so it's going to be a double bill. Go out and play shows. You pick one of your bands, and you pick another band. What are they? I had this conversation with a couple people. Um, booking agent was one of them, actually. Oh, I, yeah, but, you know, if I could take the Kiefer band out with two bands, two different bands, two different tours, 
Um, one is going to sit a little more off the off the reservation than the other, but bear with me and I'll explain. The more off the reservation one, I'll start there. Um, I, because they tour a, a, a lot, we do some similar size venues. I think at the end of the day, if you take what Tom does and what we do as a band, which honestly I think is even a little more, maybe because of the background singers and just the approach to some of the material, maybe because of the new songs, I think is even a little more rootsy rock than some of the original Cinderella stuff. We do a lot of Cinderella stuff, but the way, you know, the way we play it, I think is a little more straight ahead uh, in some ways and a little more classic 70s sounding, right? You know what I mean? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of, kind of, kind of like what we talked about with, you know, how certain bands, it's all about the production values as to when they would have been successful, but Cinderella or Tesla or some of the other bands could have come out in the 70s, 80s, or 90s and had success. I would love to see the Kiefer band go out and do shows with Soul Asylum. Ooh. And so, because I, I think Soul Asylum is just a great rock band. And they're gritty, and they've got a bluesy edge to them at times. They've got a punk edge to them at times. But I would love, like, I think people would look at that bill, and at first they'd be like, what the fuck? And then they would think about it and be like, wait a minute, I want to see that show. I you love know? that song, I think April it makes Fool. Sense. That's a great song. It's such a good song. That Misery's a great, great song. Misery's a great song. Let, song. let Your Dim Light Shine. Is that's That record, that's, yeah. Front to back, you know. Yeah. I love that album so much. Crawl um caged rat uh yeah somebody to shove yeah um, if you go back black gold. That early, yeah black old some of that early stuff like the judge and stuff like that there's so many great there's dave purner's just a genius songwriter yeah. and they're just a great rock band he i would love to do that on a writer like peak winona writer i know right so him and Paige hamilton so you know you I, I would. That's that's the one that's a little more left field. I think to most people, but I think would be awesome. And then the other one that I don't think is that far left field is I would love to see us go out and do a package with Sticks. Ooh, yeah. Tommy Shaw just celebrated like his seventieth birthday. I, I just, yeah. I was just texting with him yesterday. So, um, you know, I've never, but we've got you know, and I say that because. You know, it's something I never considered. And then I've actually gotten to be buddies with Tommy and Will Instincts and stuff like that. I think about it like, man, that'd be an awesome package, you know. But I mean, you know, time will tell. Maybe that'll come to fruition one day or not. I'm not going to put that bug in anybody's ear because I, you know, they're friends. That would would be cool. But I think think that would be a fun package. Uh, I think it'd be a fun shed tour. And, um, you know, those, those are two completely opposite things that I'm, but I think those would both be a lot of fun. You know, well, they were in between good. Tesla and Def Leppard. They played second. I saw that show. You're right. So, see, so there you go. That actually makes total sense. Mm-hmm. I right forgot there. all about that tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and they sound amazing. Tom yeah, they're really good. Ass off, you know, and they're good dudes. They're really good dudes. I think that'd be a lot of fun. A lot yeah. of hits. Oh, my God. Somebody hit so many great deep album cuts, too. You know? with, I saw them when I when I was first dating my wife. I took her to see it was Six, Ario Speedwagon, and Eddie Money. It was pretty fucking awesome. It was like 1999. Yeah, that's unreal. So, so, so oh bring my- it. I'm there for either way. And for for people who actually know Soul Asylum music, like the three of us do, that's not really out of left field. That works. Yeah, and that's what I think too. But, you know. Anyways, 
Yeah, Fuck, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> All right. Hey, for you, for you promoters and shit out there, booking agents, let's go. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I love it. I love it. We'll start, we'll start to champion the cause here. So. <laughs> All right. Two last questions for you. Um, the first one's a two-parter. Your buddy Ace Von Johnson passed this. It's a question <laughs> set from Leilani Kilgore. It's Leilani's fault, man. Okay. All right. Okay. We're going to determine whether or not you could be a psychopath through two questions. Okay. All right. All right. Make sure you focus. When making a bowl of cereal, do you first put the cereal in the bowl and then the milk, or do you put the milk in the bowl and then the cereal on top of it? Cereal in the bowl and then the milk every time. Okay. We're one for one right now, Tony. You're doing great. All right. All this right. is the, now. This is this is part two. So this is the big one. When putting on your shoes, do you, A, put your sock on the same foot and then the shoe on and then move over to your other foot, sock and shoe, or do you do socks, socks, shoes, shoes? Socks, socks, shoes, shoes. All right. He passed, Brian. He is not a psychopath. <laughs> Good to know. Next time you see Ace, ask him if he wants some Lucky Charms. All right. He All loves right. Lucky Charms, but the marshmallows don't agree with us. Don't stomach. agree with them. Yeah. Maybe I'll just get a box and take them over to him and sell them there from you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and and lastly for you, and thank you for being a good sport and hanging on here with us. Um, what's your guilty pleasure music? Oh, well, I don't feel guilty about just about anything, really. What would we be but... surprised to hear that you like? Like artist, song, whatever, genre? You want to know what album gets played in my house as much as any other record that is going to make you go, really? But I'm going to stand by it till I'm in the grave. The Xanadu soundtrack. Oh. <laughs> I fucking love Olivia Newton-John with all my heart. Um, I'm pretty sure she is absolutely the first woman I ever had a crush on. Good pretty crush. much from the time. Yeah, pretty much from the time I was like five and saw Greece for the first time, <clears throat> and then physical, and then all of it. But, um, and I can't say that I throw on the Greece soundtrack very often, and I don't can't say that I listen to physical very often. Um, although I will throw on the Greatest Hits Volume Two because that's a good overview of a lot of that material. But I will play that Xanadu soundtrack in this house on average once a month, if not twice. How does your girlfriend it's, feel about that? She loves it. Loves it. Um, and the thing, it's like the perfect, like, man, 7.30 a.m., pouring that first cup of coffee. You want Stay just the, the right, dude. no, you want just the right mood to be set. You put that thing on side one. Magic is the first song. Your day is already off to the best start it can possibly <laughs> be on. That's it. It doesn't start better than that. It just doesn't. Did Jeff Lynn from ELO write yep. some of that? He, pro he produced a bunch of it, and ELO's <clears throat> all over the second side of that album. Okay. <clears throat> so there you go. There's that, too. We get a lot yeah. of disco, disco orbital stuff on that, don't we, Brian? A lot. A lot of people say the yeah. Bee Gees. A lot of people say the Bee Gees. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I got burned out on Saturday, Saturday Night Fever when I was a kid, just being around it all the time, hearing it in the background. But that Xanadu soundtrack is just, it's my jammy jam. 
so I probably got you... I probably got three copies of it on vinyl. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. Trust me, I'm like I had two copies, but then oh wait a minute, here's a mint condition gold foil promo copy <laughs> that's never been played with the white center labels. Yeah, it's that bad. You know what, Brian? We respect that because so many of the people Good we've answer. spoken to are are on that one. Yeah. I like it. The Xanadu is definitely a, a curve. I wouldn't expect it, but that's actually a, a pretty good call. Fair enough. Fair and enough. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave us with a very controversial opinion here. You brought up Greece. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna say Greece too has better songs than Greece. I don't think I've ever heard Greece too. There's a reason you have, and it's not a good movie at all, and the songs are super <laughs> cheesy, but I that, I like the bad I like the bad stuff. Yeah, but I got to be honest, man. Olivia Newton John's the X Factor to begin with. You take her out of it, I don't want to hear the songs. But you know who's the star, who's the female star of Grease too? Michelle no. Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. That's right. And one of her mm. really early first. <clears throat> yeah. Oh yeah. She was hot. She's no this, Olivia Newton John. She's no Olivia Newton. <laughs> <laughs> the song quality is not as good. I'm just saying, in my opinion, it's better because they're so ridiculous, over the top, and overtly sexual that I get it. I get the joke. Then, then I will just leave you with this. I will say that sometime when I'm in my car by myself and there's no fucking witnesses whatsoever, and there's no chance that I could possibly wreck my car and die. And if somebody could see what it was that I was listening to as I died, I will listen to the Grease Two soundtrack and see if I can get a get around my head around what you're what you're giving me right now. Please send me a note when you do that, and let me like your <laughs> your your first first pass decision on it. Absolutely, I will make that happen. <laughs> and you're going to be like, why the fuck was I on this podcast with those? I should be asking them if they're psychopaths, not vice versa. <laughs> Yeah, you asked me a question about shoes, but then you tried to make me listen to this. <laughs> well, the new question, Brian, for Psychopaths is, do you prefer the Grease or Grease 2 soundtrack better? <laughs> yes. Hey, you're the one who likes it. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm, Psychopaths. I, I'm probably Jason. pretty close. <laughs> Jason's the one who likes it. It's, and that should be very telling. Yes. All right, Tony, where do we go? Where do our listeners go to find out more about what's going on with you? Projects, tour dates, you do a lot of animal advocacy, rescues, all the things that are going on with, with you and your, your music and everything else. Honestly, just the easiest way to keep up with me is just follow me on Instagram. It's just at Tony Higby. Um, really easy to find. Luckily, my name's just unique enough that nobody got it before me. Um, so, yeah, at Tony Higby. And, uh, you know, I'll be do my last weekend with Kiefer for the year this next coming weekend in New Mexico, a couple shows. Uh like leave on the 20th. I think the shows are the 22nd, 23rd. And then um then within for the year, then I have a one-off with Brother Kane in Arkansas uh on October 14th. And then we start up October 26th, 27th, get going with Brother Kane and that beast rolls hard all the way into the first week of december so yeah i'll see you guys in early mid-november at the king of clubs in columbus ohio i'm excited orianthi's actually playing with you guys on that ah, bill, so it's gonna yeah. be freaking killer yeah it's gonna be a fun show for sure so awesome awesome Brian? i'm looking forward to it 
Well, thank you so much to Tony Higby for being on, man. We can't wait to you're on again. Anytime you want to come on, we've had just an absolute blast. My stomach hurts you, from laughing. Good, good. My job here is done. <laughs> well, I'm, well, I'm listening. To, so I keep a little Amazon like an um, echo next to my bed, right? It's like everything. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set alarm and it's going to be the Xanadu soundtrack now just to see tomorrow morning if I can get up and pumped. When that when 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 that first track comes on, man, not Xanadu. That's the last song on the album. No, it's when magic, you track, said, right? It's magic. Right. When that kicks off, your day is just going to start right. Okay. Right. Uh, you, you listen to Grease 2. I'm going to do that and we'll compare notes. Right. Thanks, right. Tony. Like a plan. Thanks. That, guys. Thank you so much to Tony Higby for joining us. Uh, my favorite story, and I can't get the visual out of my head, is oddly freed. Jogging down the street in 70s apparel, <laughs> 70s basketball shorts, and headband. Hilarious. Yeah. And you talked about that on a future, po- our next podcast with our next guest that you're here about. I, I like the story of how he ended up in Tom Kiefer's band, and Tom Kiefer kind of slyly uh, had him try out when he didn't realize he was trying out. And then how he made it into Brother Kane, just flat out telling Damon Johnson, hey, I know you from Brother Kane, and you should get those guys back together, and I should play in them. And be damned if it didn't happen. <laughs> also, great dude to a lot of stories, man. Yeah. Also, it's so cool to hear about that neighborhood in, in Nashville and, and a lot of those guys living in close proximity. That's, that's a pretty good vibe they got going on there. Definitely a good vibe. He gave us a great amount, a bunch of band names, including a, a band called Bad Wizard that was out of New York City for a while in the early 2000s. And our friend Tina Gorin from... Jane Lee Hooker played with them for a while, and I blew my mind when I found that out, and I had to track it down and send a message to her and Tracy to say, what what bad wizard? And sure enough, it was her. And that is a great story, and hopefully this conversation uh, blew your mind as well. So always remember, Southern Rock is reverent, blues is blood. We'll see you next time.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.